Leftovers Season 2 is over. The miraculous season of The Leftovers. It's finished. It's done. But we're not done here on Post Show Recaps. Hello, everybody. I'm Josh Wiggler. I'm joined here by my main man, Antonio Mazzaro, who's in my house. What up, dog? Antonio, like, all the loved ones in my house just have Antonio's face on them. Yeah, that's great. That's fantastic. And all the dogs? Are you? Are there any dogs at the Wiggler house? Who let the dogs out? Oh, um, no. No. Is that the song you would sing at karaoke? Just, if, yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm all Baja men all the time. That's how I get out of purgatory, the hotel purgatory. Antonio, what's going on? It's been a minute since we talked. Nothing. It has been a minute, like literally one minute since yeah. we were talking right before we started yeah, recording. we were talking before we started recording. We talked on the Fargo podcast earlier this week. Obviously, it's been a few days since the Leftover Season 2 finale when Antonio and I were, we, we were live here now, but none of you guys were live with us because we had a glitch with our live show. Again, very sorry about that. But here we are with a deeper dive into the season finale of the really freaking fantastic leftover season two um and we're gonna we're gonna talk about all the things that we didn't get to talk about in the first one we're gonna talk about uh we're gonna talk about your comments your questions your feedback we're gonna get into a whole bunch of stuff we are recording this super super late on uh, a wednesday night technically i guess thursday morning um so yeah, yeah we're 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 a little wired we're a little goofy we're a little loopy it's like we've been shot through the gut and yet somehow we've survived and we're carrying on and we're bleeding all over the wall so please don't touch oh don't good. extend that metaphor any further <laughs> yeah it's as far as i'm going with that but no this is gonna be really fun really good podcast and i'm excited because i wouldn't say that we're closing out our leftovers podcast coverage necessarily hopefully knock on wood we've got some leftover season three news one way or the other soon but i think antonio and i will will find some more ways to talk about this show in uh, the days and weeks ahead as it's relevant but for now we're considering this really our big spot to talk about everything that happened in the finale and everything that transpired over the season and man talk you know david lindelof often accused of uh, not being able to stick the landing and uh really knocked it out of the park here with season two which was already such a terrific season of television and it, he just closed it in epic fashion i'm still in awe of the episode all these days later yeah, I don't. I haven't even seen a single Russian judge giving a nine or an eight point five out there. Like this seems to be universally acclaimed, which is fantastic as well. It should be. Yeah. Uh, maybe there are some dissenting voices out there that felt angry or negative about the finale. But you I, and I, I don't... got a tweet from someone who is like, "Oh, the leftovers is nonsense. It's ridiculous. It's blah blah blah." It's like, that I, was. I get the sense that was that like that's, a yeah. It was like an unrelated to us tweet. I know. Where someone had tweeted had, had tagged us in a tweet yeah. and one of their followers responded so yeah, you know that got, person just got, doesn't watch the show <laughs> yeah that's what i was thinking is like i don't think that you know it i don't think that you watch this thing yeah uh, or maybe but, they were talking about actual leftovers you know as far as the people who interact with you and i people who listen to our podcast and talk about the show with us you know the listeners people who are listening to this i haven't encountered anybody who is like that episode sucked i haven't i haven't heard that from anyone i've heard some you know like head scratching for sure but by and large i think people were really really thrilled with this one and and, um, you know, end of year lists are starting to roll out at this point, And you're finding the leftovers is really high on a lot of the very respected ones. One of my favorite critics, Sean T. Collins, had it at number five of his favorite shows of the year. Alan Seppenwall had it at number one for the second year in a row and said that last year it was an easy decision, but mostly a heart decision. And this year it was just like a slam dunk easy choice. Um, so really this show, you couldn't like, you know, the ratings are not great. The viewership is not fantastic. I know you can speak to the viewership of the finale antonio uh 
but as far as the reviews, you, they couldn't be more raving. They couldn't be they couldn't be higher through the roof if they tried. So if that's something that really really matters to HBO as they're making the decision of whether or not to bring the leftovers back for a third season, um, you know they they couldn't have they couldn't have more positive things to sift through. Yeah, and I and unfortunately I, that doesn't always move the needle for HBO. There have been instances where critically acclaimed shows get brought back for shorter orders. Uh, Treme is an example of that. The Wire um, was always kind of on the brink, uh, was never really a ratings smash. The Leftovers ratings were down over the Leftovers last year, and the ratings weren't good on this show last year. So the ratings were down throughout the course of the season, and I mean pretty pretty low. You're talking like there are very non-prestigious cable shows that are crushing this in the ratings. Things like the the House Hunters genres and things like that, uh, just destroying it at the same time. But the ratings for the last three episodes were up each episode over the other. Uh, and this final episode was the highest rated episode of the season. Uh, it got to just about a million viewers and uh, it's about to a point five in the key demo. Uh, and those numbers, you know, they're not enough to renew the show as a slam dunk, but I think the uptick is certainly, it certainly bodes well. This was a summer show last year. The competition was different as a fall show. I'm sure HBO wanted better numbers, uh, but it definitely took a hit as a result of that. So we'll just have to wait and see. Damon Lindelof has been saying, a lot about season three and the potential for season three of the leftovers. And they seem to be, there seem to be indications. And we mentioned this on our reaction podcast. There seem to be indications that we should know one way or the other on this relatively quickly. The cast's options for contracts expire in February, but right. nobody seems to be interested in waiting even that long to get an answer. So it, it would seem like he's Damon talked Lindelof, about how it'll yeah. be before new year's or shortly thereafter. Right. So it's really kind of an imminent decision. Yes, and he really was out there singing for his supper and trying to create a buzz about the show. There was some activism this week. I'm sure a lot of our listeners probably saw that. Um, it, it's been tweeted uh, at us by a couple of different people, and um, love seeing that people dressed up as the guilty remnant uh, and stood in times, you know, in front of HBO yeah, uh, in Times New York, Square. basically saying, yeah, basically saying, renew the show. You know what I mean? Well, writing renew the show on their notepads. Oh, right? fair point. Yeah, they didn't. <laughs> yeah. I challenge the listeners out there, if you know what Josh and I look like, there is someone in that crowd who looks like a hybrid of the two of us, Oh, Josh. really? Our, fu yes. our future love child together? I think it's our future love child. Yeah. I don't know how that happened, but um, I thought he departed In the future, science is going to make that possible. They're going to they're gonna pull the, the genes from our voices in our podcasting and turn it into a, a, a baby. I have faith that that will happen, that science will do that. But yeah, there was the activism there in New York. There's some great kind of media out of that. Some smart things some fans are doing. Uh, Reddit, there's a petition on Reddit. Uh, you should definitely check that out if you're into that sort of thing. Go sign the petition. Uh, there's those sorts of things that are happening. HBO has to be aware of all these. The hashtag Renew the Leftovers uh, has been flying around out there. Even if you click on it a couple of days after the show was off the air, you were seeing dozens and dozens of tweets per hour yeah. about this. So it is, it is a thing that's happening, and that's good. Uh, it isn't necessarily enough. Uh, HBO will do what they want to do. Uh, but it is it is something that you know we're not alone here. Uh, we are we are not nine two six one or whatever. There are we are numbers, and we're definitely trying here to to speak to HBO about this and 
doing what we can. So. Yeah, well, let's hope that uh, the leftovers is spared when it comes time to facing the axe. That would uh, that would make me make me very happy. You talked about how Lindelof is out there singing for his supper, and that is absolutely true. I mean, you can't throw a rock without going through the window of a Damon Lindelof interview right now. He's everywhere. Uh, he's on Hit Fix. He's on Variety. He has a Hollywood Reporter interview. There's the TV Line interview, the New York Times. He's everywhere but Twitter. Uh, <laughs> what can we get him on this podcast? <laughs> no, What's going on there? I don't think so. I think he's a hard man to reach. And one of the things that he does mention in his interview with Seppenwall, and even before I get into that, I, I think that there's so much out there in terms of all these interviews and everything that I don't think that we're going to be able to cover everything, but we'll certainly be cherry-picking a lot of Lindelof's comments and the return of Reza Aslan, who, who had another Vulture piece. Um, we'll, we'll talk about all that stuff as it relates to what we're discussing in going through your feedback. But one of the things that I thought was interesting from Lindelof, who's notoriously media shy right now because he was, you know, really basically chased with pitchforks and torches off of Twitter, um, is he talked to he talked to Sevenwall about how like he probably wouldn't be doing these interviews if not for the fact that he's in the position that he has to defend and save the show. I thought that that was interesting. Um, one of the things that you and I, Antonio, have been talking about a lot as we've been doing our best to really, you know, plead the case of the leftovers to to people and and preach preach to the to the the, the uninitiated and get people to give this show a shot and i think that we have been successful however successful we've been with that anyone who we have who has listened to our podcast and actually went through and started watching we have heard nothing but thank you for the recommendation so i i find it interesting when we, when we talk about that that we always say this is a show that really would benefit from a greater community and a greater conversation and the more people who can talk about this show the better the more conversation that is generated around the people in jardin and mapleton in this world where two percent of the population just vanished without a trace, the better. Um, and I think that it's interesting that Lindelof has the reaction that he has. And I know that there was a big surprise this season that he was probably worried about that uh, getting solved before it got, before, you know, made its way under the show with the big Meg twist in episode nine. But I feel like, you know, if I do have a knock about the leftovers and season two in general, it's maybe Lindelof could be more forthcoming. Um, you know, I know that he has been burned by the crowd before, and I know that that stings and that hurts and it's, you know, it, it teaches you not to touch the stove again. But I feel like this is a show where he's got to go to the stove and I think he's got to cook in front of a class. You know, I feel like don't don't tell us every single thing. But I just remember I remember back in the heyday of Lost when him and, and Carlton Cuse did weekly podcasts talking about every episode dealing with feedback really diving into it and really chewing on it and i think that they probably were too cutesy back then in terms of like the mysteries and what we will and won't answer and ultimately that wasn't so much what was important on the show as it was the characters and the story and resolving that in, in a really concise way I feel like I feel like the leftovers is could really use some assistance from you know the big daddy in the room, uh, and it's great that you and I have a podcast, and it's great that there are other leftovers podcasts, and that it's great that there's a, a Reddit out there for the leftovers. But I really feel like you know maybe part of generating the buzz for this show, uh, one of the ways that that could really really be helped is if Lindelof got out in front of it a little bit, and you know maybe controlled his portion of the conversation a little bit more, but engaged the fans in that way rather than having, you know, the responses curated for him the way that he talks about it's been. So, I don't know. I've been meditating on that a little bit since uh, since these interviews have started coming out. Since I saw that exchange with Sepp and Wall, I just kind of scratched my head and said, you know what? I, I think that maybe you wouldn't 
I mean, you probably would still be in the position of singing for your supper uh, because the leftovers viewership wouldn't be impacted that much by a Lindelof podcast or weekly Lindelof interviews. But I feel like the more he could put himself out there and the more he could engage with people who really, really deeply love and are moved by this show, I think the better. So if, if season three does happen, that's a real hope that I have for it, that Lindelof can kind of come out of the cottage a little bit and start talking to the masses again. Yeah, I mean, and there are ways to do that. This is a this is a different day and age. I mean, he doesn't have to get on Twitter uh, to necessarily move the needle in the way that you're talking about. So there are things that he can do. He could write just a showrunner blog. Um, that that is something that totally. And I don't remember, I don't remember the name of the guy, but uh, whoever was the showrunner on Leverage, I uh, had a great blog where he would really go behind the scenes, and sometimes it wasn't always right after the episode, but he would really give a lot of details about each episode and breaking it in the room and what it was like, and he put a lot of effort into that and I, i'll tell you as a fan of that show it made the show a lot more enjoyable i felt connected to the show I, I don't think the leftovers needs people to be more loyal to the show but i do think that it's a show that asks a lot of its viewers in terms of trust and the whole concept of access mundi that's never even mentioned on the show you know like no character says that the words are not uttered it's not in the background of any scene it is not contextual at all that's something that you pull from an interview that someone related to the show gives and that person only talked about the first two episodes before the finale so there is probably a lot going on in the background of these episodes that at least a little information or instruction could still lead people to theorize could still uh generate kind of a buzz or people's reactions and i think that that's fair i think it's hard in this day and age to know kind of to find that sweet spot uh where you're making the show and you're providing your kind of real-time feedback or real-time information, but you're not subjecting yourself to just hammering and pain and all of that. Right. And I think the problem with Damon Lindelof is he, the die for him may already be cast. No matter where he pops up online, you hear about Lost, and that's going to happen for a long time. Oh, for the rest of his career. Yes, and that so the die may be cast for him, but that doesn't mean he can't send like you know one representative from the writers' room out that week. Whoever broke the episode most with him, or I don't know how their process works, but um, that the person that you can send one person out a week. Breaking Bad does this, and or did this, and now Better Call Saul does it. The editor of the show, uh, I, just kind of she has a great podcast. Yeah, I'm blanking on her name, but her it's podcast Michelle is, something. Yeah, I forget her what her last is spectacular. Name is. Yeah, yes, and that really it. It, it drives the enjoyment of the show. It doesn't give away too many secrets. They can still play coy with the way things are going. It does require them to stay a little bit focused on, oh, wait, that's not going to be broken for another two or three episodes when we're talking about this. So we have to be really careful with Her it. Her name is Kelly Dixon, by the way. Kelly Dixon. Yeah. Okay, yeah. She's really a uh, fantastic podcast that she did for Breaking Bad and now does for Better Call Saul. And it, it's, uh, they always, you know, if it was like a key episode, like, for example, for the the third episode of the season, they may have had uh, Chris on. They're, you know, they're, uh, they may have the, the actor who played Tommy. Um, they may have had Meg on if they could get her. Right. Uh, they may have just stolen a quick interview with her while they were on set shortly after the shot of the scene or the show was filmed. So I think there the point is just like options. some some more openness would be would be a really terrific thing. I think a show like this, I get the set, I get the need. Uh, you know, the, the, I I understand how you would feel the need to protect the show because uh, certainly the Meg reveal was. A 
a big one. The fact that it was a surprise, that it was a jaw dropper, really was very effective. Um, and I don't know if they can pull that same trick off again if they do a third season anyway. I feel like people might be looking for something a lot harder than they did last time. Uh, that's a separate conversation. But I think that I, I just feel like openness is good for a show that is struggling in viewers, that has a really loyal, passionate fan base. I feel like it can only help grow things. And yeah, maybe the die is already cast for Lindelof, but I think that's a shame because he's such a personality. He's such a funny guy, and his podcast back with, back in the day with Carlton was so good. And it, he he pops off the off the page in his interviews uh, in in print as well. So I re- I I really hope that he can uh, you know to further the Breaking Bad metaphor. I hope that he can get out of his New Hampshire cottage and come back to Albuquerque at some point. You know that would be that'd be really nice. But we could we could we could really get lost in the woods of that all day. I just wanted to say that up front. It was just something that I'd been I'd been chewing on. Um, but let's talk about what. Yeah, other... So if anybody ever sees Damon Lindelof on the street, yeah. tell him, well, talk to us more, guy. Yeah. Come on. Well, I'm glad that we front loaded the podcast with that on like the very, very, very two percent of the world population off chance that he ever listens to this thing. Like, I'm glad that maybe he would he would listen to that much at least. Hopefully, yeah. uh, it's not going to happen. He's not going to listen to this thing. He listens to everything, Josh. Yeah, he, he's, he's like Santa Claus. Yeah, he's everywhere. Santa Lindelof. Yes. Um, all right. So let's talk about what what you guys have been chewing on. Um, we we were only able to cover so much in our reaction podcast we were only able to to be on the air for so long and there was so much that happened in this episode and so much that's happened on this season that we just couldn't cover it all and do it justice we're going to do our best to to get into a wide range of topics and we kind of want you guys to guide us you've been fueling us all along with your comments and your support and just everything that you guys have been bringing to this podcast has really been super beneficial for antonio and i and aj mass when he's been on here um so we really want to turn this over to you guys to kind of be uh our virgils uh hopefully cleaner but our virgils guiding us through this final podcast here uh as we wrap up the season so antonio with that i'm gonna i'm gonna give you the wheel here to uh to steer us forward i think we should begin at the end john and I think that there, we had a lot of comments and a lot of feedback about the last 10 minutes after Kevin wakes up uh, and he kind of wonders through Hill Valley, 1985, yeah. Merrick Hill, you know, Merrick Hill Valley. Um, and he's kind of seeing all the horrible things. And he ends back at, at the house, you know, after he meets up with John and everything. Um, we had uh, Rob Sesternino, uh, co-host of so many shows here at Post Show Recaps, the man who drives the bus, ultimately, grenade or not. Uh, Rob says, great job on the podcast, guys. I love hearing all your coverage. As I binge through the show, I know how anti-Holy Wayne Josh is. Oh, really? (laughs) Yes. But did you give him a second thought, Rob says, as he offered to grant Kevin Garvey any wishes he was dying? Of course, Kevin wished that he got his family back. Lo and behold, at the end of season two and possibly the series, here's Kevin reunited with both his real family and the one he created with Nora and Lily Wayne. And if that wasn't already a coincidence, Kevin cheated death through somewhat miraculous circumstances three times in ten episodes this season. I know the show has often provided ambiguity on things, but how could science explain such a happy ending for Kevin Garvey? Could that final earthquake be just a signal to Kevin of the divine intervention at play? Wow. Well, first off, just hats off to Rob for trucking through all of the leftovers. I was really happy when he he texted Antonio and I a few weeks ago, uh, not even a few weeks ago, probably last week, uh, saying like, hey, I'm watching episode two. I'm about to listen to your podcast. Like, oh, okay. So you're actually doing this thing. And he was caught up, you know, shortly after the finale aired. Uh, so that that's really great that Rob that Rob checked it out. And I know that 
that he really loved it. He was telling me that he was on the edge of his seat uh, watching the finale. He thought it was a spectacular episode of the show. Uh, so that was that's really cool. But this is a, this is interesting. I mean, look, I, I'm I'm willing to to you know concede some territory on Holy Wayne just because I thought that he was terrific in International Assassin. Like I would just <laughs> I would just I would you know tip my Holy Wayne hat to him just on that alone that he was so funny as the as one of President Patty's security guards uh, as one of her uh, Secret Service officers. Um, so yeah, I I think that this is this is an interesting point. Um, I'd kind of forgotten. Is that what Kevin? That was Kevin's wish was to get his family back. Uh, it certainly seemed like it, yeah. uh, and that you know that that is kind of what we had seem, seemingly happen in the moment. Um, that that wasn't as overt, and if you'll remember, season one ended with that sort of happening, with uh, the baby being left on the doorstep and right. Nora Durst showing up, and Kevin and Jill walking back to the house after all the horrible events of the previous evening. Uh, then Nora is there with the baby, and they're a new family that is formed. Um, and so it's not like Lori comes back to Kevin or. Tommy rejoins the fold, but here we see not only what we saw at the end of season one, which is Nora, Baby, and Jill, but Lori and Tommy are back in the fold, and even Mary is right. back in the fold. Right. So this is like wish fulfillment writ large, uh, and I don't know. Does this, does this at all, Josh, change your assessment of Wayne? Or, or I mean, uh, I think a lot of these things, we're just going to say science or faith. Like, uh, sure. You know, it just depends on how you interpret the show. But I want to know for you, since you were so anti-Holy Wayne, and since Rob was really kind of pointing that out does this does this change your opinion about his holiness in any way um you know i i, I not really i mean <laughs> i think i think it's a cool read i think if you're invested in holy wayne um then then you can you could certainly read it this way uh holy wayne is still a really problematic character for me from all of season one and i'm glad that they wrapped him up in season one and that he didn't we didn't get too much wayne in our season two i think that that would have been difficult i think that he was used perfectly here um but i think that it, you know it's it's certainly thematic resonant to the idea of Kevin making that wish and Kevin ending season two surrounded by, you know, the vast majority, if not all of his, you know, living loved ones. Um, that's, it's such a, it's such a sweet, tender moment for him that I certainly, you know, as much as I want season three, I really understand the argument and I will be okay if there is no more leftovers. Like, I feel like this is such a happy ending for Kevin Garvey, despite the fact that hell is, you know, truly at their doorstep, uh, in here in Jarden now that it's been overrun. There's something so emotionally comforting and satisfying by the fact that Kevin Garvey, after everything we've seen him go through is surrounded by his family and if you want to assign that to holy wayne have at it friends i'm not going to fight you on it but i don't think that i'm going to give that i'm not going to put that point in uh, holy wayne's column how about you yeah. does, that, does that validate holy wayne for you no not particularly i mean i think holy wayne's own lack of faith and his own kind of uh impact and powers there uh, says it all for me about holy wayne i don't think we ever really know uh whether or not uh, this is a proof of his holiness one way or the other. Um, it, it is interesting that we we get a lot of family themes throughout the course of this show, um, not just this season, but this episode. And I think it really plays out really with the end. But it's, it's crazy that you said happy ending uh, because we had a lot of people who had a slightly different read on it. And I think we have a good kind of definitive statement from Damon Lindelof here uh, about that. But a lot of people uh, had asked us about the ending. Let me give you kind of a, a good summary here. Uh, first of all, we've got comment from Adam 
MK on post show recaps. Um, although a large part of me is glad Kevin survived and can participate in season three, another part is unsatisfied with the fact that he survived a bullet to the chest flat out. During the scenes at the hotel, I really thought he was going to pass on, especially during the song when his closest people were shown in montage. If he had died, I think the emotional impact would have been larger, and it could have brought the episode to the level of International Assassin. And let me give you a similar comment from Metal Gear, uh, or Meta 7 Gear. If you're you mean Metal Gear. Yeah, it says... Uh, solid, solid Snake here. No, uh, Meta 7 Gear says... The coda that follows of Kevin waking up and walking through town while containing some incredible performances from Thoreau and Carol leans a little too heavily on the audience to reset their expectations. Personally, I still can view this as a final journey for Kevin and that him getting home is still representative of his journey into the afterlife. But, well, if the show gets renewed for season three, then, yeah, he survives and we can keep on having Kevin stories. I love the show and I trust Lindelof 100 percent, but they've definitely missed out on what could have been one of the girls greatest finales of our time and i think that you know this is trent c finally uh, in a similar vein says the entire john and kevin exchange at the end was heartwarming i also think it means a whole lot more than we saw on the surface the final scene in kevin and nora's house happy ending or was everyone dead some chilling foreshadowing when john asked kevin what if no one's there so josh we didn't really get into this too much we sort of teased at it uh, on the the um recap uh, kind of reaction show that we did but now we kind of face this head on this last scene with kevin garvey when he walks into a house and inexplicably his whole family has reunited inexplicably to him that is and he's back from the dead and this crazy final earthquake happens is it just surface level are we reading this directly as it occurred on screen or is there more metaphor in play here and there's there a possibility that this is kevin's afterlife and this is meant as kind of a you know not a spoiler here but a similar to end of lost kind of season with the church yeah so i think that you can you can slice into this a few different ways and one is the author's intent uh and to 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 get into that we turn to an interview with lindelof by the new york times's jen cheney who said uh their interview kicks off as follows uh Cheney writes, I suspect there's going to be some conversation about what the ending of the finale meant. Is Kevin dead? Is Kevin alive? I'm assuming you deliberately left that open to interpretation. Lindelof responds by saying, in terms of whether he's dead or alive? Cheney responds, yes, or am I just crazy? And it should be very obvious. Lindelof says... I don't think you're crazy, but I also don't want to get cutesy in terms of saying what our intentionality was. Are you saying from the moment Kevin finishes his karaoke song and then sits up in the kennel, everything that happens from that point until the very end of the episode feels a little bit dreamlike? Cheney says yes. Lindelof continues. That was completely and totally unintentional. The intentionality is more like the real world has become almost just as strange as this quote-unquote unreal world he's just left. Again, I don't want to say, like, you have to read this interview to get clarity on it because I love the fact that the debate is happening, but I am here to tell you by all definitions, Kevin is just as alive in the moment where he walks into the room and is surrounded by his entire family as he is when he's jogging in the beginning of the pilot, which is, uh, that's the end of his, his statement, which is great news because, uh, as, as said an international assassin, congratulations, Kevin, and that stems back all the way from the first, <laughs> from the first jogging. No sweatpants. In, from the first jogging in the pilot. So, at least as far as the writers are concerned, that's all real. Kevin is alive. Kevin wakes up from the hotel. He's alive. He is miraculously alive in Miracle. The bullet passed. Um, John Murphy is there to help him up and, and lift him up and bring him home. And when he goes into his house, he is indeed surrounded by his flesh and blood alive family. So I expect 
is season three happens, then all of that happened. All of that was real. Now, here's the other aspect. If there is no season three, if season two is it, if that was the final episode of The Leftovers, then I think that you could very validly read it as a continuation of his afterlife. He could, he could have sang his Simon and Garfunkel way out of the hotel into this other plane, into this other world. It could have been a, a continuation of that same realm. We know that he was able to get to Jardin from the hotel back an international assassin. He goes home. He is surrounded by his loved ones. It is an echo of the lost finale in its own way. Um, and poor John Murphy is worried worried that he has he has effed up so hard that he might not have anyone in his church. Um, I think that that is an absolutely valid read if this show does not continue. But if the show continues, I think they're all alive. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think that it's an okay ending to kind of have your cake and eat it too in that regard. It isn't cutesy to say that you could read it that way. It isn't necessarily their intent because they don't want to say that in light of the fact that season three could happen. And then where do you pick up if you've said, oh, yeah, we wanted you to say they're dead? And I think he's learned his lesson about, oh, well, we wanted to be vague about that. I don't think that the point of this show is to have a continual, are they alive or are they dead? Where are they? Are they in? purgatory what Guys, is this where magic? are we yeah where are we i that, think he's done with that. the last thing he wants yes, right yes. so i think that it, it makes a lot of sense why he would say you know this is what it is or but at I least also, like if, if that's going to be the conversation to at least present it in such a way where you could have it whereas on yes. lost like it, it, it was really you know kind of definitive. uh so i, I like the ambiguity like that the, there is you know the way that it's written and conceived is that there there could be some ambiguity to it of course if season three happens that ends the ambiguity yeah and and i think the earthquake is a big part of that and i think that we didn't we haven't talked a ton about this and i think it's important to talk about it there is that final earthquake of course we know that when kevin first comes out of the ground at the end of international assassin there's the earthquake we know that when kevin tries to kill himself and has the cinder block and jumps into the water there's an earthquake uh, we know that there's an earthquake right before mary wakes up so there are these important earthquakes that are happening in jordan there was also of course the earthquake at the very beginning with the uh, native people uh, and what happened with the woman and her baby so those are all things that are happening in the context of this show. Uh, but that final earthquake was a little interesting because it seems to be the only one that isn't really directly linked to some other incident that we can kind of say, like, Mary wakes up or, you know, cave closes or uh, Kevin is saved or spared or whatever. Um, we had some definite thoughts on our page at Post Show Recaps about the final earthquake. Tar Sentinel said, the last earthquake doesn't seem to make sense, but I want to interpret that as God. God saying, welcome back, Kevin, or now you do know that I do whatever I want to, uh, and that sort of thing. So, Josh, are you reading into these earthquakes at all? We have another really interesting theory we'll get to later in this podcast from AJ Mass about what that second earthquake or the final earthquake might be. But is, do you think this is something if we get a season three, we're going to pick up and say, oh, snap, that last earthquake gave us X? Um, I hope so. I mean, I hope that this isn't, you know, if there is, if there is a future for the leftovers that I hope that we're diving into that more, um, because that was, you know, as my friend Kevin Mahadeo on the Jessica Jones podcast would say, that's bananas, uh, his favorite word. You know, it was, it was insane. It was, you know, it was the, it was a How ripe are those bananas. Josh? They're pretty ripe. They're pretty ripe. They're fresh. <laughs> uh, so let's pluck them and eat them. And I think that the, the earthquake stuff was, was really, really fun. A really great sort of frenetic 
frenetic visual way of adding some urgency to the proceedings and adding this sort of thunderous godlike quality of you know inevitability and potentially damnation and potentially salvation but something definitely from on high and cosmic and holy and literally earth-shaking um it was it was beautiful it was brilliant and i'm fine with it as just kind of like you know metaphor if it's if if the show ends here if the show doesn't continue and i don't ever need explicit meaning as i really don't need from just about anything on this show um but i i would hope that it's explored more in the future as for as for what it meant what what i take from it i think that it's you know i i feel like it is just sort of the you know the world sort of reacting to this never going to be the same type of situation that we're in here in the finale that things in Jarden um, are you know there is no sudden departure that affected Jarden but now this is sort of the departure level event and it's kind of like um, it's almost a course correction and because Jarden was quote unquote spared for so many years four years to be exact that there is just sort of this thunderous impossible to ignore physical reckoning happening and and, um, you know, you could I, I kind of interpret it as something a little bit sinister. But that last earthquake, that final earthquake, I'm not sure. It was obviously very biblical. Yeah. And I don't know. I mean, I think that I think the door is open for that quake leading us to something more uh, or representing something more. And we'll talk about um, A.J. Mass's theory, which I think is interesting. And I think there are other possibilities if we stay in Miracle and we stay in Jarden for a season three. Um, and we'll talk about some of those theories as well, uh, what that earthquake could mean or what it could lead to. Uh, but for now, it is interesting. And I don't, you know, we, with the statement from Lindelof, I don't think it's meant to represent Kevin, you know, emerging into a different world or changing worlds yet again. Uh, but it is, there's something there that's not, it doesn't happen on accident. I actually thought, you know, I think I might have said this. I actually thought when it happened that some tree was going to fall on Kevin or something and he was going to just for real die. Right. And that was going to be this, this cosmic, horrible coincidence. And what kind of statement is that? And that's what we we're going to end the show with. Uh, thankfully, that wasn't the case. That's such uh, a nihilistic know. Meg-like ending. Yes. yes. I, Damon Lindelof is a lot smarter than the dark portions of my heart. Uh-huh. Uh, but yeah, that... <laughs> That did happen. Uh, so I don't know. Well, I, there's definitely something. There's a there there. Um, we haven't really kind of triangulated it, I don't think. Uh, but it's certainly something, if we're going to talk about planting flags, that we can plant a flag on. There's something we might want to investigate for season three. It could just be metaphoric at the end of the day. We'll see. Something else that is interesting, Josh, that maybe is a metaphor and maybe is a flag plant, uh, are the dogs. We had Who a, let a, the a, dogs up? Here we go again. Josh's karaoke. Are you going to make it home, Josh? Everybody was something. Everybody was something. Yippee everybody Kyo. was. The party was jumping. That's I think. what it is. Yeah, yeah. Everybody's having a ball. I got the yippee kayo part. I think you did. You that should. Was, that was blasting at a wedding that I was at a few months ago, and I ripped it up. Are you a Baja man? I am. I said that earlier. That's fantastic. Or maybe yeah. I just thought it earlier. I don't know if I said. I that. don't remember. Honestly, it's getting a little late. <laughs> it's getting really late. Hence the loopiness. But the dogs, Josh. Let's talk about the dogs. Let's talk about the um, dogs. We had a voicemail real. from Jackie. We had a voicemail from Jackie, and we had a comment from JMac610. Uh, and both of them wanted to know. Jackie said it would actually make her Christmas if we could if we, if we could establish what was going on with the dog. That's right. JMac610 says, "What about the dog? He stayed with Kevin until he came back, and then the dog left. Did the dog leave perhaps because Kevin is no longer a nine lives cat anymore, and the dog is no longer needed? I don't know. What we, the dogs? We know the dogs are feral in season one, uh, and they kind." Of if they witness the departure, they're they're different. 
And that is something that is heavily uh, involved right from the jump in season one with the BBA Dean shooting the dogs, Kevin maybe shooting the dogs, a dead dog in the trunk and all of it. That dog's been in quarantine the whole season. The face off between John and Kevin occurs in part be- in, in that room because of the dog. Uh, and then when we get, when Kevin is, is awoken, uh, when he's up, the dog's with him and then the dog's gone. What's going on there, Josh? Yeah, yeah. What is going on there indeed? I mean, who knows what's actually going on there? Uh, I on, Only emotionally I do I have kind of, um, you know, a take on it. Uh, emotionally to me, you know, the dogs were affected by the departure as well. You know, as you just outlined, a lot of them went feral, but a lot of these dogs witnessed this thing happening. Um, and, you know, there's the whole man's best friend aspect. So, like, what happens to man's best friend when their when their men go away and their women go away and their kids go away? Uh, and I, I think it's, you know, kind of interesting to think about the leftovers. You know, we're, we're so invested in the, in the human characters and there really aren't dog characters to really, oh, snap. To really chew on. We need <laughs> yeah, that'd be great. Come in. That would be fantastic. Oh, the Poochie POV episode. Hey, maybe we'll get a dog POV episode next season. Oh. That, if that comes to pass, that'd be great. That'd be a real good use of uh, your 10 episode bandwidth, I think. Yeah, uh, dog is just a dyslexic <laughs> version of God. So yeah, right. Exactly. Here. Hey, hey, there you go. I think that you just hit on something. But no, I think, you know, it's, it's interesting to think about this world through their lens, you know, through their point of view. Um, so I, I, I really have always liked that. I think that that's, you know, I think that that's a really interesting viewpoint into the world of the leftovers. But as for Kevin's specific dog sticking around and staying with Kevin, I think that, you know, it's, it's the reason why it's, you know, why these dogs, why, why dogs are often referred to as man's best friend. It's like this, you know, final show of loyalty that the dog isn't going to leave until it's certain that its master is gone. Like he, he wants to, to comfort his master and stay with him until he passes and i feel like that's also again without spoilers very lost like if you've seen lost all the way through you understand um and i think that it's kind of you know this this really sweet touching moment that the dog stays with kevin until it knows that kevin's okay and then when there's this crossroads moment of kevin is like i have to you know go into jardin and go find my family and you know frankly patch myself up because lord i'm bleeding out all over the place the dog's like well i'm not i'm not going with you you need to be with your family and now i need to be with mine you know the dogs are not ours anymore is what the bba used to say back in season one and i think that you know this this the dogs that's that's been the case with dogs on the show uh this dog kevin's dog which used to be really rabid and feral has now been you know in isolation for however long uh the garveys have been in jardin for and i feel like you know it's sort of a mirror of kevin of like i was here for you i was you know i was i was here for you while you needed me but your family needs you and my family needs me and we need to go off and search for our own parties. And I think that that's the, that's the, you know, it's called it a breakup is probably too harsh an assessment, but it's the parting of ways. It's now we go down our separate roads. So maybe that's an overread into it, but that was sort of emotionally how I, how I read it that, um, you know, on, on reflection and having watched the episode a second time and just having some time to think about it. Like that was just how, how the dog thing kind of emotionally resonated with me is that it's a reflection of Kevin in terms of now I have to go find my family, but we were here for each other when we needed rehabilitation uh, and we helped see each other through really hard times, uh, you know, potentially through through near-death experiences. So I kind of, you know, as, as a sucker for the whole Vincent thing, I thought that this was all really beautiful. Yeah, that's interesting. I, I, I'm reading that you're saying basically that the dog just wants to go slam beers and listen to dog step. Is that what's happening? <laughs> yeah, dog step. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> I don't know. Um, I don't know. I, I think that that's. I think that that's interesting. I think that the. 
we know how society reacted to the departure. We see that uh, in micro and macro throughout the course of the series. Uh, and we see some great, you know, kind of insurance and commercials. And we see it play out in all aspects of society, especially in guests. We really start to see that world expanded in season one. But we don't really know in terms of the departure how nature reacted, except for what we know about the dogs. We know that the dogs are weird. There is the deer. Do you think that the trees one. were quietly freaking out like, oh, my God. <laughs> well, I mean, this is a good question, right? Because like that, we know how people reacted, but I think that in season one, there is a lot of a greater focus uh, on how nature reacted, on the deer going crazy throughout the course of the season, on the dogs going crazy. It's almost like the event was so unnatural and so unusual that even nature was like, WTF, mate, like what's going on here? <laughs> so I do think that there is some aspect of that that's always been present with nature. There's also, of course, the famous um, hellhound of Hades, uh, Cerberus, like that dog has like a, a mythological thing. Three heads, uh, right? Three heads, uh, kind of prevents the dead from leaving the underworld, guards the gates. The dog has three heads? The dog has three heads. So one of them and is so that's John, kind of, obviously. The other is Danny. But who's the third? Uh, I think maybe Bran or Tyrion. Okay. I'm not sure. Okay. You know, your mileage may vary on that third on that third head. But yeah, that, that dog guards the underworld. If you want to read the kind of um, <clears throat> the Jarden or Miracle has turned into hell like we're talking about, I think it stands to reason that that dog, if this, if this dog is kind of being read mythologically, that there could be a read there. Uh, and I think we, you know, we could get more into that. Uh, as the case may be, um, it is interesting that the kind of departure of Kevin and the dog occurs right by that bridge. Right. Um, so, so like the dog would be leaving to defend this place. Yeah, or just maybe at the ed- maybe the dog will is, is going to go set up shop at the edge of the bridge so nobody can get out. Like right. I don't know if that's where all the dogs are, are, are. You know that that sort of thing could be happening. That's cool. I love that. Yeah, I don't know exactly. I don't know exactly. You know, I just know that the show has established in season one this history of how the animals and nature reacted to kind of the events that happened because they were so unnatural uh and now we have kevin kind of emerging having changed perhaps and maybe the dog his reaction to kevin has changed and i think that brings us into sort of the next kind of section of comments and questions that we want to talk about here which is let's talk about international assassin 2 dark territory josh <laughs> are you ready for this is that an under siege joke it is an under siege oh joke my yes God. yeah wow. steven seagal was not taken in the departure i have good authority on that yeah well he take he took on some some something else some some lbs yeah some lbs yeah hey no fat shaming josh According Come to on. The, listen uh, I, <laughs> <laughs> no steven seagal will hunt you down he has a very particular set of skills that aren't the same as liam neeson's but are very similar they would but no they would still make him a nightmare for someone like me yes well, well yeah me too yeah, yeah um yeah. international assassin 2 though the sequel to Inter- international assassin dark territory we have kevin kind of I, I, go didn't, ahead. I didn't say this on the the reaction podcast but when when kevin has that line where he's like i'm not having doing this again i think that was that was my favorite line of the leftovers I, just like the it, like the like total exasperation of like nope i've done this before not going through this again i just <laughs> yeah. thought, i thought the rose line read on that was just so tight that was so funny the MF read was also great. Yeah. As soon as he emerges from the tub, he looks at <laughs> the mirror and just screams yeah, it mother a couple ever. of times. Yeah, mother it was ever. great. Yeah, it was great. But what I didn't get, and I think where I'm struggling, and I would love to know your read on this as it kind of plays into these kind of comments that we can get into about International Assassin 2 Dark Territory, is Kevin was supposed to have changed 
by you know or, or have changed by having emerged from the other world the first time uh we talk a little bit on this podcast about the changes maybe um you know he's just he's brave now he's not afraid he will talk to john murphy about this incident uh this is the first real episode of course where we see kevin having emerged and we get a chance to see whether he changed or not and then not only that but we have him go to the hotel again and emerge again presumably Every time you emerge, uh, something is slightly different about you. You're taking a little bit different thing from the experience. So I'm not sure where you think we, the Kevin Garvey we know is at this point because of these incidents um, or if they've changed him in any way. And maybe that also influences why the dog reacts to him the way he is. I mean, what do you read on the changes of Kevin Garvey uh, as, you know, or, or, is that, or is that hokum that he really hasn't changed as a result of the experience? I think he's changed tremendously. I think, you know, for one thing, the fact that Patty is no longer stuck on him, um, the fact that he is under, you know, he's out from under her thumb, it, he sees things so much more clearly. And, you know, it, it's actually interesting. I, he, he remembers the Evie thing at the top of the episode when he's talking to Michael. He's like, I got to talk to your father. I know what happened to your sister. Um, and to contrast that with what Patty had said in Orange Sticker, I believe, uh, where it's like the girls, they departed and they're gone. They're vanished. Poof. Um, to me, you know, really sh- call him that for the record. She what? <laughs> No, go ahead. <laughs> she, uh, she, you know, like, I, it, it kind of crystallizes to me, like, why she would say that is, like, you know, to really kind of bury down deep inside Kevin's uh, memories of seeing that, you know, all of those repressed memories that he has as he's sleepwalking. She's really defending that aspect of, you know, her control over him. So I thought that that was really cool. I think that you can connect those things. And it explains why she would say uh, they departed um, and she would still, you you know, she would be wrong, and it doesn't mean that the supernatural isn't a thing also. It's not that she's omniscient. It's that she's actively lying to him. And I think that she was actively lying to him about a lot. I think that the read of the final scene of this show is that Kevin very much loves his family um, and is not, you know, with them out of fear or obligation. I think it's genuine, genuine, pure-hearted love. And I think that a lot of the things that he was wrestling with through Patty were those fears and those phobias and those anxieties of, like, am I am I worthy of them? Um, you know, are, you know, do I deserve them? Uh, do I deserve this life? And that's something he says in his, you know, in international assassin too, when he's talking to the man who may or may not be, uh, the Australian, um, and says like, I deserve to be here. I deserve to be, right. I, I deserve to leave. Um, and I, and I think that you, like, you could read that as a bratty thing to say that maybe the old Kevin would say, but I think that it's like, it's a guy who's finally found, um, you know, what he, what he truly loves and believes in and what he wants and finally sees himself as a person who's worthy of that stuff. Um, I think that when he comes out and when he's talking to Michael and when he's talking to John, he's talking about somebody, he's talking like somebody who knows what's up, who, who knows the score of this, who knows that miracles can happen in miracle and is no longer afraid of that. I think he was very resistant to that kind of talk when think about like his father back in season one would say, I just do what the voices tell me to do now. 
Um, and like he thought that that was all BS and truly just thought that he was actually losing his mind. And I think now this is a guy who's taken some comfort in having his, his vision quest completed, thing that he is not somebody who's lost his mind, thing that he was someone who was under duress and is now out from under duress and is much more confident and in control and is much more forgiving of his situation and of his, of him, of himself is ready to embrace love for himself and embrace the love of others. I think that's why he shows, shows such tremendous kindness to John Murphy, even after he's been gut shot by the guy. Um, so I think that he changed radically. I think that, you know, if we get season through season three, I think that the Kevin Garvey that we would get in that season would be a spectacularly different individual. I think that there would still be similarities. He's still the guy who's going to, if he goes, you know, for international assassin three, he's going to look in the, in the mirror and probably punch the mirror as well as say mother effort probably five times. Uh, So like, there's always going to be edginess to him. I don't think that the songs on his iPod are suddenly going to, you know, soften up. Um, Is he going to stop listening to the pixies? No, 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 no. He's going to be listening to that for, for all time he's going to be listening to his, his heavy metal he's going to be listening to all that stuff like he will always have an edge to him um but i think that he is somebody who is uh, a lot more actualized as a human being and i think that that would require the kevin that we would see in season three to be a really really tremendously different person um because i feel like the change with him is probably less interesting now that's one thing that faces the leftovers if it comes back for season three is that right now he's a guy who's got everything he wants right uh, he's got his family he's got his he's got his mind back he knows where it went um and really the, what's dramatically interesting is john murphy and the murphys and how those people have been messed up and other people in the garvey family who are messed up but i feel like kevin returns to his proverbial cave and he's somebody who's a lot more self-assured and a lot of his family members who are you know broken down who are dealing with their own trials and tribulations this is something that reza aslan uh, talks about a lot with kevin garvey is that he's shamanistic i feel like now kevin is in a place where he's if any of us are ever fully healed i don't know about that but he is much more whole than he was once upon a time and i feel like what's interesting about kevin is not that he's going to be facing uh uh, his own crucibles, but that he is somebody who can kind of shepherd people through a lot of their trials and tribulations. So I think that that's what's interesting about Kevin Shepard. Kevin Shepard, yeah. Oh no, from Kevin Josh, from Kevin Garvey this? to Kevin Harvey to Kevin Garfunkel to Kevin Shepard. Oh my uh, gosh, and then to Kevin Bacon. Um, <laughs> that's where we're going. That's where we're going. Uh, so yeah, so I think I the, the very long winded uh, answer that I gave the short version of that is I think that Kevin Garvey is remarkably changed by his experience. I like your wind. It's fine. Um, I think that's right. Andrew had a great comment that's along the same lines. And Andrew said uh, at post-show recaps, I took the exchange that Kevin had at the hotel with the man about singing as a sign that this isn't the same Kevin. When Kevin says this is stupid, I thought that showed us season (laughs) one Kevin. Stubborn, close-minded, not willing to take leaps of faith. Right. Uh, but the fact that he actually did sing and did not walk away showed the evolution that Kevin went under this season. He has a much more open mind now and isn't as close-minded as he once was. So I do agree um, that yeah, that like, He's not perfect. There. He's not perfect. You know? Right. He's, gonna, he's still he's Kevin gonna, Garvey. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Is like He's still going to think that singing your way out of purgatory is stupid, but now he'll do it. Right. That's exactly right. Like he's kind of like a, a real dad now, you know, right. like he's just going to he's going to put up with a lot more that he maybe had a harder time putting up with before. Totally. And I think that that's great. 
I I do like that read on Kevin Garvey. That's a lot more nuanced, I think, than just as like uh, as broad a read as like, oh, his you know he can't he can't die anymore. You know, like that could be a change. Like maybe the fact that he came back this time, if you want to read this on a slightly different level, means that he can never die, and that's the change. I don't think that's the case, but of course that could be the case, right? And so, are we going to get a scene with him in season three with Nora where he says, "I promise I'll never die." Oh no! I should hope not. I really not. Uh, let's <laughs> commence not the uh, the puppet sex. Yeah, let's not have that happen. If that's if that's at all possible, I don't want to commence that at all. Okay. No commencing. Okay. Um, yeah, but I don't know. It, it is a, it is a Kevin Garvey that I think we'll see more of that change if we do get a season three. But if we don't, I like this sort of nuanced emotional change, Kevin, uh, than something really wrong that has happened. I mean, I think a lot of people had feared the worst about this. Because the successful test case for the Virgil uh, concierge treatment was uh, the guy who's at the top of the tower. Uh, and the guy who's at the top of the tower, I think we would all agree, doesn't really seem to be that well-adjusted of a guy well, who we could say, yeah, he's great. Who knows? We don't know anything about that guy. That guy might be great. I mean, he's, he, you know, he's sending packages to the Australian. He maybe, Where does he go to the bathroom, Josh? He, in the bucket. That's not a normal dude. That's then. not a great Sorry. dude, but he's serving a purpose. He feels like he's got to be on the watchtower, watching out for the for the bad things coming. No, no, I, I don't think he's. I don't think he's changed for the better if he's making number ones and number twos. In a bucket. I'm well, sorry. It's not great like for, it doesn't. It's, it's not great for you know sanity, but uh, or for um, yeah, for, yeah, sanitary, sanitary any, reasons. Yes, uh, it's late. We could talk business here. Let's go. I mean, nope, we stop, just stop. We just uh, yeah. This I'm, I'm just full giving bloom, my, full bloom. Yeah, I'm giving my friend Jeremiah Panhorse and Mike Bloom a little love here. Yeah. Uh, but no, seriously, that's number one and number two in my heart, by the way, um, in any order. But I would say that I would say that yeah, you you had worried. We had worried. I think I think all viewers were probably pretty worried about the change. And we see that as the test case here. Uh, And in a season three, we could see Kevin talk to that guy more because he probably wants to fill that guy out. Like, hey, what was your experience like? Where was that? And of course, season three, Kevin is going to really want to talk to Kevin Sr. for the same reason, whether it's through God's tongue or not. Like he's going to really want to pick that brain there. Uh, And so I think that there's a lot of interesting kind of stuff to be mined there for Kevin. So even though you're right, like, his dramatic conflict is not the same as it was in season two and it has changed. Uh, it doesn't mean we're not going to get Kevin as a sort of shaman and as sort of a, a truth seeker. Uh, and that wouldn't just have as much power in a season three. So that would be uh, really kind of interesting as well. Uh, Laura Maria Olson had a comment on a similar vein, but that can take us in a little bit of a different direction. She said, you both speculated on whether he'd wear any of the other suits in the future. And I wonder if now that Kevin has truly shed his demons, will he come out of it more priest-like. Not that he necessarily becomes religious, but definitely that he becomes more spiritual, more at peace, the peacemaker, the wise man, healer, and she does everything but say shaman. If his old self was really more along the lines of the guilty remnant, then really the only uniform he hasn't worn is priest. Could he be done with the uniforms then? Do the uniforms symbolize stages in the journey to self-love and acceptance? What do you think? That's really, wow, that's really, that's really great. Um, yeah, I mean, I I feel like, you know, maybe it represents the fact that like you're be- like 
you know, there's the line. There's know, know yourself and then adorn yourself accordingly. Know who you are, then adorn yourself accordingly. Um, and the first time he, you know, whether he knew it or not, as he was putting on the international assassin suit, he was a guy who really wanted to kill Patty Levin. He wanted to kill, kill her from his life, uh, you know, wipe her clean, erase all traces of her existence. Um, and I think that by the end of it, even though he had, he had selected this journey and he kind of had to see it through, by the end of it, I feel like there's a sense that he wishes that it could have worked out another way. You know, still where the two of them could have been at peace, but where he didn't have to drown the poor girl in the well. Um, I think when he comes back, when he returns to the hotel, he sees the cop uniform and he sees Garvey on the name tag and he knows himself and he knows that identity and he's going to try another path and he kind of has to uphold the laws of this place that he's in. Um, he, you know, whether he thinks they're right or wrong, you know, he knows that the rules of the game are, you know, that he has to go up on stage and sing a song on, you know, the, the big wheel of karaoke and belt it out as best as he can. If he wants to stand a chance of getting out of there. Um, I think now, depending on where he went from here, depending on, on the character that we got, if he is now more priest-like, as Laura uh, suggests, that he's somebody who comes out as a wise man, a healer, an inspirer, a peacemaker, uh, which I would expect that that is you know, kind of the direction that we would be going in with Kevin. And I think that we started going in that direction here at the end of the episode. Um, I would suspect that, you know, knock on wood for poor Kevin's sake, for, for, for poor Mr. Harvey's sake, that he doesn't have to return to the hotel, but that if he were to go back to the hotel, that maybe that would be the more appropriate, you know, choice of adornment that he could suit up in priest mode, uh, priest mode cowboy, priest mode cowboy. You know, I think that uh, that's a big brother thing. I don't even know the big brother, but I've heard it before. Um, I think you're going to hear it again before too long. So the rumors tell me. Um, so I, I think that that you know that could be the direction that he goes in next. God forbid, poor Kevin has to go back to you know International Assassin Three. But I think that if you know the new Kevin could be priest-like and could be somebody who is living that life and maybe that was always a life that he had hoped for himself somebody who could be more at peace and could and could be you know a, a peaceful pacifistic leader you know somebody who heals and helps people uh non-violently rather than as a globe-trotting assassin which he's really not or as a cop who somehow ha- sometimes has to whip out the baton um so to speak uh that you know this would be something congratulations this, <laughs> this would be something to aspire to uh so I really like that read. I think that's a really smart read from Laura. Yeah, I think so too. And I, I don't know exactly where that goes. Uh, the, the, there were some great comments in, in so many great interviews Damon Lindelof did. Uh, I think this might have been either in the one we did with Alan Sepinwall or kind of answering questions at the New York Times page. But he said basically that no matter what outfit he put on in the first kind of international assassin – he would have still had the same mission, yeah. which is to kill Patty, which is to free himself of Patty, to kill her, to do it. it the, the episode may have played out differently, but the way they broke the story is they wanted to do the international assassin story first and foremost. It wasn't like they had the idea of four outfits in the closet, and then they, they broke the international assassin story, having broken the other ones and, and decided the international assassin was best. It was that they decided they wanted to kind of couch the episode in these terms that they were talking about. What kind of afterlifes might we see? Like what, what's a good way to kind of, kind of capture this? And the hotel idea came up and somebody mentioned the word assassinate. Like maybe he has to assassinate Patty. And that's when they went into, oh my gosh, we're going to have, um, we're going to have the deep throat, uh, the actor who played 
series, uh, Virgil, was kind of one of the deep throat type roles on X-Files. And that's where they really kind of knew him as a prominent actor. And so they thought, we're going to have the scene in the garage. We're going to do that thing. We're going to have all the tropes. It's going to be great. So they broke the story that way, not the idea of the four. And then this was the best one. So... I think that their their strong belief is that Kevin had to kill Patty, and that's where we went with all of it. So if you want to say that these things are representative of different aspects of his personality uh, or his kind of journey to self-love, I think that you could read it that way because I think that fits with the writer's intent uh, in terms of the way they broke the story. So I do think that that's interesting. What about those songs, Josh? What, do you know what some of those other song choices were that he almost got, that he could have gotten? Instead of Simon and Garfunkel. Yeah, yes. you, you listed them out for me. You sent these along to me. One of them was uh, Living on a Prayer, some some John Bon Jovi. I would have loved to have heard him belt that out. I think maybe he would have been less emotional and more just a sight gag. Yeah. Uh, Bohemian Rhapsody was on the list. Uh, like a Prayer, I know that that was their top choice. They wanted to get it, but uh, Niche Niche from the Madonna camp. Yes, uh, Madonna's does not like the lefties. Yeah, All My Exes Live in Texas was in, was in, <laughs> was in the mix. Coming to coming to bear for Kevin here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Don't stop believing, which is obviously very interesting, considering um, you know the the big Sopranos connection and the fact that International Assassin. This whole idea uh, was a hat tip to Sopranos. This whole Kevin Finnerty arc, uh, which if you don't know what the Sopranos is or haven't seen much of the Sopranos, that's not going to mean anything to you until you get there. Um, you know, I think that that's that's a real because you know Lindelof is clearly a big Sopranos fan. That's a really fun nod. Um, and and yeah, you know that's that's really the list, and then it gets to to Homeward Bound, which is which is what they ultimately settled on, which has a lot of resonance for Kevin's arc. The the lyrics in there, you know, the magazines and cigarettes that we see. I love how they you know they actually just cut to that on screen rather than just having that percolate in your mind. I think it was powerful to just like see what's on his mind as uh, as he's going through this experience. And I was watching this again. I was watching this the other night, and um, I I almost lost it. Um, when like the last image that he conjures up in his head as he's singing is Carrie Coon's face. Yeah. He sees Nora Durst and she's just like smiling big and bright with like these really like kind of like, you know, wet eyes and like, you know, just like the, the sweetest smile and like her, like her glowing teeth and stuff. And it was just like this real sprite like quality to Nora Durst that really, uh, just in, in, in one image of Carrie Coon and of Nora Durst just really encapsulated for me, like why she's just like someone that you fall in love with. Uh, it was just like such a beautiful thing. And I've, you know, I've been shipping the Kevin Nora thing real hard ever since they brought it onto the show uh and so you liked it at first because they were both hot yeah you know. totally no listen i'm shameless in that I, lo- I love the hotness uh but like i just it, it meant so much and it was just it was such a beautiful thing uh, yeah so to see that while he was singing it was just so awesome yeah I mean, I read that as like his life flashing before his eyes, truly. Like you hear about that, like, oh, my life flashed before my eyes, right before I died or when I had a near-death experience or whatever. And I totally read that that way. Yeah, and I, th- I, th- I thought that that was it. I thought that, yeah. you know, I thought that he was going to sing him his way out of existence. And I yep. thought that this was the last we were ever going to see of him. And it like both, like, you know, really was heartening, but also really sad at the same time. Yeah, because we could have had I Would Die For You. That was the only other option. Uh, and yeah, I think he would. I'd like, die was- for you. Certainly willing to wait a minute. Is that are you saying <laughs> you know it's true? Everything I do, I do it for you. Is that are you saying is that more Bon Jovi or who is that? Is that Brian Adams? 
Is that Robin Hood? No, that was. I know that you didn't want to talk about puppets anymore, but that was my my puppet singing to you. Oh my gosh! No more. What is this Avenue Q? Yeah, it's happening here. Pretty much. No, but I I did like that <laughs> that we had all those options and all those things were on the on the board and on the table. Uh, and you know, we heard Angel of the Morning from the the previous singer. Who knows what her deal was? I think that we have to talk a little bit about what we might now know about the hotel uh in light of the fact that mary wasn't there right uh, the second time around we had that uh, from stephanie uh stephanie had tweeted that at us um and stephanie barlaro had asked us you know my question for the podcast is why was mary at the hotel in episode eight did she die and come back because we know mary wakes up she's not there this time around uh so what's going on there josh yeah uh lindelof has a read on this you you've heard about this i'm sure antonio um about the hotel and like you know you and i have batted around that one of the beautiful awesome things about international assassin is that maybe this is you know a, a true spiritual plane or maybe this is all just in like Kevin Garvey's bug nuts crazy head. Uh, and I mean, I think, I, I think that you could still read it in multiple directions right now. I think that there's still, there's still ways to go about it, but I think that there's some points in the column of this is happening. Um, you know, the fact that it happens again, uh, the fact that, you know, he comes back from it again after following the orders of a person. I think that you could still read it as in his mind. Um, but I think that there, there's an argument that it's, it's really happening. And, and Lindelof, he he in his New York Times Q and A is kind of asked about like the the differences between is this purgatory is this in 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 your mind um, and he says uh, this is one question where I think that we had a very specific specific intention but I feel like I wouldn't want to take away from the audience's interpretation I will give some suggestions though which is if you have the time to watch the episode again you might want to listen to what the Latina woman is saying throughout the episode she appears twice once in the episode before Kevin gets in the car with Virgil and then again after the fire alarm is. Pulled before kevin approaches the man with balloons if you speak spanish or know someone who does what she's saying very specifically pertains to the question asked i think that i'll probably just leave it at that um so so uh reddit was on the case for this right thank you reddit thank you reddit uh reddit cracked the case reddit uh looked into what this woman was saying and you've got the answer to that yeah basically i mean this is sort of a summary but but the woman, if you'll recall, had like an, a cooler with her uh, and she was speaking in sort of ha- kind of a harried or hushed kind of like she was there was something important. And she was basically saying, like, I have a heart. I have to deliver this heart or someone's going to die. Uh, so she clearly had a heart in that uh, cooler that she was trying to deliver to someone in the hotel. Uh, and she was being forbidden from doing that the two times we saw her. So does that mean that she's related to someone else's? you know, situation. I mean, I think according to Lindelof, he said in that maybe in that same interview that as far as he knows, Kevin doesn't speak Spanish. Right. Uh, Kevin, we know Kevin Sr. does uh, because we saw that happen in the library uh, in the first season. But we don't know about Kevin, you know, Kevin Garvey. Uh, and so here's someone, if this is in his head, speaking Spanish and probably not related to Kevin. Uh, or maybe it is. Maybe this is related to the second time Kevin shows up. Maybe this is all Kevin's world. And so that's the I'm a little puzzled about that. I mean, she's trying to deliver a heart. Someone's going to die if she doesn't. Is it for Kevin? 
happen? Is it for someone else? I don't think I don't I don't I don't I really don't rightly know in that regard. Right. And I think that, you know, that's one of the things that's going to remain open ended if the series is over. But if the series isn't over, the fact that we returned to uh, the Hotel International assassin, uh, I think it, it suggests to me that this is a this is a you know this is a, a location in the universe. This is this is a part of the show. This is a place we could revisit. We revisited it two episodes later, uh, if only for you know ten or fifteen minutes, but we were back there. Um, and you know if Kevin is the only character that we ever follow into that rabbit hole and you know out of the bathtub, then you know you could continue to have this conversation back and forth for a very long time, and it could you know still be kind of a debate. But if you ever got it where like. You you know if another character dies or comes close to dying in you know a season three like let's just say you know, pick a name pick a name of of a character that you like on the show Matt Matt Jameson so let's say Matt Jameson is in a car wreck of his own um, or you know let's say Mary slips back let's say Mary regresses and uh, and Kevin says to Matt well Mary was in this place where I was and I can be your Virgil and I can guide you to the hotel and I can tell you what to do and if we were to see an episode that was international assassin ish that had Matt Jameson going through that world that would pretty clearly indicate to me that the hotel exists uh that would suggest to me that that plane of existence is a very real thing on the show as it is as it stands i think that it's ambiguous still uh i think ambiguous leaning heavily on the side of in my interpretation leaning heavily on the side of this thing exists in the universe of the leftovers um and i had said at the time when we were recording our international assassin podcast that i liked that like i didn't think that i would i've always loved the ambiguity of the leftovers and i hope to god that if the show comes back and it continues that it, it can maintain that um as often as possible um but i'm you know i'm sold on this thing existing like the show on um, you know against probably my better wishes made me think that like I, I i hope that that's real i hope that that's a place i hope that that's a thing that you can do and i would love to see it come back on this show. you love hotels big fan of hotels yeah uh, hotel so pizza I, is my thing so what, what's your take on all that I, I i agree with you i think one of the other interesting lindelof quotes is that their take on the show really seems to be that 98 percent of the world's population was fine two percent of the world's population disappeared so one of their reads is like their world is 98 percent on the level explainable everything makes sense and two percent of it's just not right uh and two percent of it's going to be open-ended and ambiguous and and they're going to be these things that you could interpret either way and that's that like uh i i like the the cricket example in this episode that we get with the murphy family where john opens the cricket and why would evie find that cricket and erica has a different interpretation no after she gave you that gift i still heard the cricket in the house so you can read into it what you want uh and have that gift represent something that you think for your daughter the truth is it's not the truth the truth is that your read is wrong uh, and that's something else is in play. So so everybody can counter kind of their views with another factor with something else that's going on that still can't be explained. But I like that that exists in this world, that you can have it kind of both ways. Because if we do get the Matt Jameson hotel episode, he would probably choose the priest outfit, first of all. Second of all, um, I I do think that that would, as you're pointing out. Can you just see that episode playing out too? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, he's already had two very near examples of this, except they took place in the other, you know, the outer world. Um, he's already gone on two quests, if you will, in right. the two boats and a helicopter episode uh, and in the episode this season with Mary outside of Jarden. So he's really, this is a character that's right for it. Uh, I can absolutely see that happening. And you can just see him like grinning like a fool being like, yeah, give me the poison. Let's do this. Yeah. I'm, I'm in. I'm I, be- I believe you, Kevin. 
You know, Jesus went to hell. I can do it. You I know, got this, I got this. So I don't know. I think that 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 would confirm it. But I like living in a world where she's delivering a heart, and we don't know who it's to. Uh, maybe that heart uh, woke somebody up. Maybe that was for Kevin. Maybe that's the the self of love. Um, maybe it's for Mary and that's what woke her up out of the situation. We don't really know. Uh, it could have been for somebody else who was dealing with their own thing, uh, which if you read from Neil uh, in International Assassin, the hotel's full of those people running around, doing their things. There is the scene with the priest. There's the scene with the other cop, uh, whether that's supposed to be Kevin or not. Um, it seems more like those are other people doing their own trials and that lends itself to more that this is a real thing. So I, <coughs> I think it will be interesting to see if we get a third season for sure if we get that episode again what about the uh, the guard what about the no, i'm sorry what about the guilty remnant though josh because no one's put that guilty remnant outfit on an international assassin i don't think anyone will they are present in international assassin but meg's version is definitely present uh, as we you know obviously see play out in this final episode here um we had a lot of comments about the guilty remnant i think the biggest one the one that i want to kick off this kind of uh, final real big point here is from colin stone and Colin says, I definitely love Evie joining the guilty remnant in the sense that it was unexpected and dramatic and necessary for everything to come together to, to make one of the best seasons in TV history. And I'm fine with suspending disbelief almost constantly for the show. But to me, the three girls becoming devout guilty remnant followers still doesn't make a ton of sense, especially when the guilty remnant is all about making people remember while none of the girls has lost anyone or even seem to know anyone that departed. Meg encountered young Evie when she first visited Jarden. Are we supposed to conclude that she converted a then 14-year-old girl? No, I mean, Evie wasn't in, you know, Meg wasn't in the guilty remnant at that point. So, did Evie join independently and meet back up with Meg later? I mean, what do you think? What do you think about that, Josh? Like, how does this all play out in your head? Yeah, I think that I think that Meg and Evie they linked up, and I think that you see the closeness between the two of them, not just in that first encounter that we get in um, in ten thirteen, but also in their haunting. Beautifully haunting, hauntingly beautiful, however you want to describe it, rendition of the Miracle Anthem um, toward the end of the finale, which was just one of the, ah, so good, such a great moment. Um, You see there's there's like a real closeness and camaraderie between the two, and you see Evie in like pure militant leadership mode with her friends, if you even want to call them that anymore. Oh my Uh, gosh. Uh, Her subordinates. So, you know, when when the, the girl who's driving the car is crying and like Evie leans forward to at the time you assume to comfort her and then writes down on the notepad don't uh it was just like oh man okay so here's the real evie murphy um i don't find it unrealistic i think that i think that we we have a lot here to show that evie is somebody who is uh who is in pain we got a lot of this in the finale uh we got michael's story about the bathtub we got michael's story about how she was crying so much that he had to drown out the noise so that mom wouldn't come up because she was so confused and what was she confused by was her father in jail at this point yes yeah and they didn't know why right uh, he was in jail so he had already shot uh virgil so right. that so he, happened so he had already shot virgil and how do you remember how old they said that they were at the time no i think they were very, relatively young like you know in the in the five to six seven year old range right. i think so they were so they were young uh th- there was you know something happening there at maybe first they were 13 maybe they were a little older i don't know at, at first i thought that uh that like the reason why the water was actually overflowing when he started pivoting the story was going to be like really dark and it was gonna be like because evie was trying to drown me and blah she's a monster you don't know uh, i'm glad that that's not the direction it went but there was there was a darkness in evie the way that there was a darkness in in 
in Meg, or at least, if not darkness, then at least something that was, you know, um, you know, a little bigger than than a conventional read of of what we had in our first meetings with these characters. I think that there's a lot of camaraderie and a lot of connection between the two, and I think that it's worth exploring, you know, the question of what did Virgil do. Um, you know, we got some answers on Virgil in this episode. You and I had talked about how we could see Virgil being John Murphy's father. So it's kind of a mirror image of the Garvey situation, Kevin and his estrangement with his own father. Turns out that, uh, Virgil was Erica's father. Um, and that, that opens up a lot of possibilities. And there's, there's the scene between Kevin and John Murphy at the, at the kennel where, you know, Kevin says like, Virgil told me what he did to you and how he hurt you. And I'm so sorry. And John, like, like really adamantly rejects that like he didn't right. do anything to me um and the theory had been that you know that virgil had molested john uh that virgil talks about you know his foul you know the foul machinery below the waist and you know uh, i hurt him long ago well he could have hurt him long ago by hurting somebody else sure and you know it, it you're, it's hard to imagine the scenario where virgil you know who, who knows how john and erica met but it's hard to imagine like the scenario where virgil is in a place where he could like sexually violate john if you know what i mean <laughs> yeah john's a uh, is a tough guy yeah. uh and unless I, they grew up together you know they, unless they grew up together which is a possibility that's still on sure. the table sure um but i think uh you know did he did he do something to erica i think that that's now on the table um did he do something to did he do something to one of the kids yeah did he, it's on the table too did he do something to to michael um and that's why like there's like a lot of like you can't visit with michael although i feel like that would be a lot sharper if it was with michael did he do something to evie but did he do something to evie and i think right now to me that feels like the likeliest candidate yeah. uh and it, it would explain a lot of the the rage and darkness and the sense that uh, she did lose something, you know, to to the to the point that Colin makes about how the the girls didn't lose anything or even seem to know that anyone departed. I think that the, it, it goes back to the distinction between the guilty remnant and Meg's guilty remnant. And Meg's guilty remnant stems from a place of it doesn't matter just that you lost somebody in the departure. Like losses, you know, you know, she says to to um, to Tommy in a great line. Where she says uh, family is everything, um, and I think that that is you could read that a whole lot of ways. I don't know how much time we have to dive into all of that, um, but one of the ways you could read it is like that all of this is stemming from you know what happened between her and her mom, or at least the big cosmic fu that happened to her in losing you know an in, a, a pivotal character in her life the day before so many other characters were just like completely without any notice or reason or explanation removed from the board. Um, and I think that the loss that Meg has is, you know, potentially very much in line with the type of loss that a young Evie could have had. Um, you know, and let's even take the Virgil out of it and just say that her father went to jail for something inexplicable and no one was really around to articulate that to her about why that happened. Um, and, you know, something like that happening to you at a really young age can turn, can transform you, can turn you into someone very cold and, and you know, removed or cynical or susceptible to the kind of, um, you know, charismatic ideology that someone like Meg could float Evie's way. So, yeah, there's a lot of gapping that you kind of have to do and a lot of connecting the dots of how did Meg and Evie link back up. That's another reason why I would love to see season three because I feel like that episode is, you know, ripe for the taking. I, I, I love 
the I love the idea of a third season because you know that Evie's a series regular. You know that Evie is really on the show now, and she's such a fascinating character. Um, but I I don't think that I don't think it doesn't make a ton of sense. I think it makes a lot of sense why Evie would link up with these people. Um, yeah, she's also a teenager, and we know the teenagers right. in this world are dark, and we didn't see a ton of that throughout the course of this season. Now, Michael was the teenager we got, and he was so polite and so nice, and he didn't even want want to do anything uh, untoward with Jill. And Jill's still a little bit Mapleton Jill and a little cynical and a little dark. But we saw a lot more of that, obviously, in season one. And even if something did happen to Evie, um, that doesn't explain why the other two girls would be susceptible to it or accepting of it. But, you know, there is a difference, I think, that is shown in this episode between the three girls. One of the girls who's driving is crying, and Evie does hold the sign up, as you point out. Uh, And Evie is the one driving the bus ultimately. So even though all three are along for the ride and doing this thing, Evie is the one driving, even if she's in the backseat. So um, that is – Yes, that is happening. So true. This is all a sticky situation. It really was. It's like uh, like you sat in gum or got you know honey in your hair or something right. like that. Um, it is interesting though because Meg has not been in the Guilty Remnant that long. She's really only been in the Guilty Remnant for about a year, uh, and this is what kind of is playing out. So you have to assume that she really kind of wanted to reach out to somebody in Miracle uh, because maybe started formulating this plan shortly after what happened in Mapleton last season. And, you know, we know Meg had a historic issue with Miracle and Jarden. And so at some point she starts formulating this plan and probably reaches out to Evie. Social media is a possibility. Facebook. I mean, those things clearly exist in the world of the leftovers. Uh, you know, we, we do have technology. So that's an easy way for two people to connect across thousands of miles. Uh, maybe they remembered each other. Maybe she sought her out. Um, maybe Meg did her homework. We don't really know. Uh, maybe Evie liked the Guilty Remnant page uh, and Meg used that to track her down uh, to get kind of connected with Mapleton. There has to be um, some kind of connection there. A lot of people have speculated secret cell phone. That's certainly a possibility. There are a lot of options, but you have to consider start from a place where Meg is specifically targeting Miracle probably for a while. Right. Uh, and then you know you can develop to a place where she would probably want to formulate this plan. She's got a lot of people on the ground there. It isn't just Evie and the two girls. I mean, we see the people that put the guilty remnant white on, uh, and there's dozens and dozens and dozens of them that storm into that town. So she's clearly been doing some groundwork there. And it's possible that Meg isn't specifically the one who's done the primary outreach with Evie. We don't know who that was. Uh, But I think that we get a little bit more about what was going on there. What about their plan, though, Josh? Like, their plan clearly was to kind of let themselves in. This is where AJ's kind of quote comes in. AJ says... This is musing for when you guys revisit the Leftovers finale. Did Meg have plastic explosives at all? Mm. That was the threat on the bridge that proved to be fake. But if she did have it in the first place, where is it? AJ's guess, one, some was used by the guilty remnant to facilitate water draining. Maybe even Dr. Goodhart put it there on the night of the girl's disappearance to add to the belief. Two, the rest actually has been used to now blow up the bridge, which they did off screen, of course, at the end of the episode, the final earthquake, to protect their new headquarters. Ah, so that the earth, that the final earthquake would be manufactured by some sort of explosive. Yes, and the well, and the and the rock one was as well, the one that saved Kevin when the girls were departing. 
Uh, and that's AJ's theory about the plastic explosives. So, do you, you know, Meg has clearly set up shop there in the Miracle Welcome Center. Uh, is she going to lead kind of a branch, the Branch Davidians version of the Guilty Remnant there in Jarden now? Is, is that what's happening? Well, I do think that she's taking this place as headquarters. I think that she is setting up shop here. And I think that, uh, you know, the fallout of that, that's something that we talked about on the reaction show is like, you know, is the, is the ATF with Colts. I don't, I forget what the acronym is now in the world of the leftovers. Uh, but this organization that tracks down cults and things like that, are they now going to be drawn back into the mix? And are we going to see some sort of siege of Jarden play out? I think that all of that is really fun to, to, yeah, Charles Bickle had a good comment about that. He thinks that we're going to see a huge backlash against the GR with the citizens of miracle going after them. The ATFC is going to show up maybe with Kevin and company caught in the middle. So that was his season three story, you know, possibility. I think it could play out that way for sure. Yeah, I think it could play out that way. So, you know, the, to, to the question of is Meg setting up shop here? I think absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, could could the explosive? Could they have blown up the bridge? I would like to think that they would have shown us that. Um, I, I think it's possible. I think it's absolutely in the cards. But I would, I really would have liked to have seen that on the show if that were the case. Uh, you know, I know we're we're holding back on some budget stuff, maybe because it's you know not a watch, a highly watched show. So maybe we're we're trying to you know save some pennies. But I w- I would really like to think that if that was something that was going to happen in this world, that that would be something that we would see on screen in season two in the finale because that would be such a big deal it's it's definitely a possibility um dr goodhart oh poor dr goodhart do we do we really want i mean yeah and john already buffed him up like all these horrible things are happening to him yeah i don't know who knows i don't know it'll be interesting to see kind of where we take off with that um so that, that, I mean, I think is fascinating. I, I think with Meg and Evie and the Guilty Remnant, we had another quote from or comment from J-Mac asking about the timeline of the events. I think it is a little muddled. Um, the time it took the girls to draw from their house to the lake. Uh, Kevin settled in at home, went to sleep, slept, walked to the old man's house, talked over a plan with him, got the cinder block and rope. All these things happened. Can you explain that? I mean – I think the issue is ultimately that the girls didn't go right to that spot. They probably went and formulated their escape, picked up their kind of go bags, if you will, uh, got everything they needed to get in order to set everything up, and then ended up at the site. And we're not just traversing right from the Murphy's house to the site. Is that the way you interpreted that as well? To tell you the truth, Antonio, I didn't think too much about it, and I'm still not thinking too much about it. I think like that's the kind of thing that I, I don't like to think about too, too much unless the other aspects of a show are really not great. Um, you know, like the, the fact that, like, Kevin is – he sees the girls drive off, and then presumably when the girls show up, uh, Kevin is just there. Like, yeah, that seems wonky in the timeline, and maybe that's not – you know, maybe my read on it is uh, is too forgiving for some people. I just don't get hung up on that kind of thing unless the rest of the show is just falling. I mean the performances, the storytelling, the writing, all of that stuff is so sharp and so sublime on this show. I don't really mind about this. I, I didn't think about it much then. I'm not thinking about it much now. Now, uh, if you if you if you want to read it the way that you just suggested, good enough for me. Uh, I just I, I and no no disrespect to the person asking the question. I, I just I kind of don't care. No, I I mean I have a lawyer brain, so these sorts of things. I know I mean, we I, got I, into your lawyer brain on a Fargo podcast. Oh my gosh, <laughs> sorry about that. No, everyone. no, that's, that's that's totally fine. And but I but I think that you know you and I we didn't we didn't get hot, but we got a little heated because you and I come from from different places, and you are you're much more detail oriented about that kind of thing uh, than I really care to be. Um, and you know it, probably in terms of like survival and uh, making you know deso- decisions that are going to protect you in life, you've got the much better brain. Uh, 
than I do. I would pick your brain uh, <laughs> every day of the week uh, for, for that kind of thing. But for me, like, I can just shut it off and I'm happy to do it. And I, I don't think about it. And, you know, I, I don't know. I don't know what you want to read from that, but that's just how I am. Well, no, and I, I understand that. And I, and I think that the, you know, to the commenter, uh, to J Max Extend, I would just say, I think the possibility is, is most likely there. The girls didn't go right to the lake. It's, it's pretty much that simple. In, maybe the show didn't do a tight enough job of presenting that as a possibility, right. but I think that's there for sure. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, do you want to talk about the Murphys a little more? Because I, I know that when when we um, when we were talking about doing the feedback show, you and I were talking offline, and you just had uh, you said I want I could go on for about John Murphy for a long time. Yeah, let's do that. I mean, we we talked a little bit about the Virgil kind of aspect of this, but I think that the Michael scene that we were just talking about is really kind of fascinating because we know, for example, <clears throat> with Nora Durst that a lot of her issues, such as they exist, stem from the fact that her whole family departed. And she feels responsible for that. She feels guilty over it. She has all these things that are really, you know, come to the surface over all of that. We know with Kevin uh, where his issues kind of come from. Kevin. Kevin. We know Kevin's issues, at least in some way, we know that they're related to the departure. They're related to not having answers. They're related to perhaps genetics. Um, but we've got kind of a good background on what his problems are and where they root. But I think this is the, the real episode where we found out that the horrible things that happen in this season that are not departure related, that everything that happened with Evie, everything that happened that kind of drove the story of the Murphy family this season – are probably related to the horrible things that happened with Virgil and one of the family members. We don't know who they are. And I think that that's fascinating because we don't have a character here who has been affected by something otherworldly. We don't have a character who is outside of our realm or experience in our lives. We have someone who could be our neighbor, could be our cousin, could be our brother, could be somebody that has the same experience as John Murphy uh, and is not somebody who just had some one of their family members magically disappear, right. but instead who was a, is a victim of something. Uh, and that as a victim of that, their life has been impacted and their story is just as screwed up. And when the guilty remnant comes in, into play, just as susceptible to that kind of negativity with the case of Evie uh, as it is with, uh, you know, somebody who lost somebody. And I think that's fascinating. I think that that, if you start to think about it, it does a great job of localizing the leftovers emotionally in a way that re- we really can probably relate to. Uh, so many people think the leftovers is about death and about depression and about unexplained phenomena in general. And I think that that's right. But I think that here with John Murphy, we have a story about somebody who had a very relatable, yet horrible, but very relatable thing happen to him. Something we probably know someone in our sphere who has been affected by. Uh, and uh, this is a very dangerous thing because, of course, you don't want to present it like, well, if this sort of thing happens in your life, what's going to happen is you're going to become a kind of person who burns houses down and shoots people in the chest. Right. That isn't true. But I think it's a fascinating look at horror and emotional things that just are hard to explain and really don't make any sense at all anyway um, and yet aren't the departure and the impact that they can have on the family. And I think that knowing that that's what the Murphy family's story is, looking back at the course of the season um, and how that spirals and affects and impacts in those twists and helixes all the people that are in the Murphy family and in their sphere, I think that's fascinating. 
I yeah. really yeah, and Kevin Carroll crushed it in this episode. His scene, you know, his moment of blind rage shooting Kevin uh, was just like, like you yeah, hate that you, was it. You hate you hated it because you don't like. Come on, Kevin just came back. Yeah, uh, so like you you were pissed about it, but like, MF. Yeah, but you told but you totally buy it in the moment, and and the fact that you know that Murphy that John pivots from that immediately into bridge mode uh, because of what's going on with um, you know with with Evie coming back. Uh, I thought that, that that pivot was so great and so natural from 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 Kevin Carroll, the actor. And when he you know when he stumbles upon Justin Thoreau in the in the clinic at the end of the episode and just breaks down in front of him, the the switch of the gears from from when John comes into the room and sees Kevin and says, "I killed you." And Kevin, another great line. So many great lines. I keep calling them the best. They can't all be the best, but they're all so good. Uh, Kevin says, nope. Yep. Uh, nope. <laughs> which I loved. Um, and, and just like from, from that moment, for, from, from Kevin responding that way to John Murphy going from I killed you to like sort of this like really palpable sense of relief of, oh, this other thing that like I had buried because there's so much else going on right now, at least one thing I can take off of my back that this man is not dead because of me and I might have a chance at saving his life and fixing at least one thing that I effed up uh, was really beautifully played. The way his face crumbles in the face of this situation uh, as whereas my mind starts coming back into the picture, um, it was just all so beautifully, beautifully, beautifully done. Uh, you know, John Murphy has been such a fascinating, compelling character from the moment that he was introduced, was just such a complicated guy, um, but was filled with a lot of anger and a lot of there are no miracles in Miracle when the show kind of really suggests the possibility at least that it's otherwise, and I love where he is right now, and he, you know, the Murphy family is really the big, big, big reason why I do want to see more of this show. I could leave the Garveys where they are, and I would be mostly okay, um, but with, with, with the Murphys, with John especially, I still want to know, I mean, now I feel like the dots have kind of been connected for why erica wanted to get the hell out of there because uh, of the way that you know john has been uh, but i, I want to know so much more about these guys and it, it, it is a, a credit to the writing of course uh but a real real credit to regina king and kevin carroll uh i think that those two have been great the um the actors who play michael murphy and evie i think have been terrific and i just i want to see more of their story yeah i mean it is great and i really love the the duel i don't understand i don't understand with john and kevin in that clinic there um because it does as i said sort of relate it it you know the the understanding you understand i don't understand that line from the guilty remnant from patty to kevin her last words and all of it um to have john murphy say that to kevin and see him similarly situated and see them ending up bros if you will walking back home uh, both walking into their houses at the same time and that great kind of line about like what happens if no one's home? Well, then you come over to my house. You right. know, like that's great. Um, and I really, I just appreciate seeing those two uh, revel in their similarities, especially when it comes to emotional vulnerability, uh, instead of being separated by their differences and instead of putting walls up. And you know, that is that is fantastic. Um, whether or not that earthquake relates to something that happens with John. Uh, we don't know. Uh, John's already in the house by the time it happens. So it's hard to say. But I would definitely love to see more of the Murphys as well. Maybe the like earthquake said, was like a hell mouth opening up underneath the Murphy house and he just got swallowed up. Oh, no. That would be horrible. <laughs> That'd be so sad. A hell mouth. I don't think we need a hell mouth, Josh. I don't think so either. 
Yeah. So, I mean, I, I really like that because John is a, is kind of a man without a country here at this point. You know, he already earlier in the episode gave Erica the big F off. Um, the stuff with Evie, of course, you know, Erica's going to blame that on John. Yeah. Um, and that's really rough. Um, Michael, uh, told the story kind of about the water and about how the kids were sad because of John's original sin, if you will. Uh, so I think all of that is kind of resting on John and it's really tough because he kind of is a man without a family at this point. And family is such a big theme of this episode. And of course, of the series in general, we already talked about Rob's comment at the beginning of this podcast, but Andiamo had left a good, a good comment here. And there's a great long reply that if you're interested in this topic from rhythm of wisdom that you should check out on post show recap, on our page for this pod or for this the previous for the reaction podcast but Antiamo says I was really interested in the exchange between Meg and Tommy when she asks him if he's worried about his family he echoes Patty by saying there is no family and she looks confused and asks what that means and he says I thought that was the point she says that's not the point at all then kisses him and says family is everything right we talked about it a little bit already here but Antiamo says so is this just another way of showing that Meg is distancing herself from the original guilty remnant is it her letting Tommy off the hook to go be with his family she told him last episode he didn't need the guilty remnant he needed a family or is this just meg continuing to confuse tommy to keep him tied to her by letting him think she knows something he doesn't uh and like i said there's a great long reply from rhythm of wisdom i encourage people to check out but i don't know what are you what's your take on the whole family thing uh and and why that's so prevalent with meg and tommy specifically well i think that one of the reads is what i talked about with meg earlier is that i think that a lot of the uh you know the doctrine of of what meg is doing is fueled by the fact that this was her family that she lost and like right. no, no one gave a shit uh and it's like well now now let's make you give all of the shits <laughs> yeah and when you were talking about that earlier i thought you know we don't really know what's up with meg's dad um we know that meg had beef with her mom right we know that her father is absentee or, yes. or dead out of the picture enough you don't know. enough right. that her mom was remarried yeah and part of the reason that i that i bring it up now is because are there, you know, John Murphy, if he's a man without a country or whatever, is he going to be kind of a, or is, is Erica going to be uh, a, a, perhaps a fertile recruit for the guilty remnant? Are these people with whom this message might resonate uh, and they might find community with Meg's version of the guilty remnant? Could you see another Murphy joining the guilty remnant in Texas? Yeah, I could. I could see Erica being being down with that. I mean, uh, certainly... Uh, it, it's certainly something that I could see happening with her. Um, you know, I, I think that one of the other things that I thought was interesting was the way that she, you know, just kind of made eye contact with, with Kevin at the end of the thing. And, you know, if you want to take her line from the penultimate episode of the season, literally when she says to get you pregnant to Tommy so that we could have a baby, basically, it, it would be the read on that. Again, unless she's junioring him, which I don't think we're, we're doing <laughs> yeah, I don't, it. I don't yeah. think that can happen, yeah, for the record scientifically yeah. I mean maybe in this world where science and faith are a little you right. know muddled but I, I don't think that can actually happen listen if Arnold Schwarzenegger can do it it's possible yeah. uh, but I, I think that you know it would be like you know to get you pregnant would be like we're pregnant I'm I'm pregnant with with a Garvey um, which you know it wouldn't be Kevin Garvey's blood or anything like that but she would be connected to that family all of the sudden. Um, so maybe there's something there. I mean, you know, is she gonna is she gonna pervert that at all? Like, oh well, why wasn't I in, invited to the house? I'm part of the Garvey family now. Oh, um, right. You know, that could be a dark path that season three could go down. 
Yeah, I mean, it could be. And I think it's interesting because, you know, if, if she recruits another Murphy, if Tommy is this sort of kind of fluid character who is torn between both sides, I think those are all kind of interesting things that the show could do dramatically. Uh, Laura Maria Olson also left us another comment, uh, or is a continuation of her first, where she said, that she resisted sharing this earlier in the season because she didn't think it could happen. But the way the season ended now it can toward the middle of the season, Laura says, I thought how I'd like to be a fly on the wall when Tommy and Kevin finally sit down and compare notes regarding the Holy Wayne stuff. Yeah. What would they say? How would that go? How would everyone feel knowing their daughter, Lily is Holy Wayne's baby. Uh, Does she also have his gifts? Um, She read a theory that Holy Wayne was real because he told Kevin to get rid of that family, like Rob's theory. Right. Um, I actually, Laura says, I actually think now Kevin will believe and Tommy won't. Yeah. Um, And I, you know, that's interesting to me because we talked about how Kevin's going to want to compare notes with Kevin senior. And we talked about how that Kevin's probably going to want to compare notes with the guy in the tower, but we didn't talk about how Tommy and Kevin are going to want to compare notes about Holy Wayne and whether Nora's going to have anything to say about that. Um, Is that something you could see in a season three? And would you be interested in seeing that at all? Yeah, totally. I'd be down for that. I mean, listen, I'm I'm not Holy Wayne's biggest fan, but that's still a plot thread that happened in in this show. And if they could follow that down in an interesting way, I feel like they have used Holy Wayne effectively in the past. Once again, see International Assassin. Um, So I wouldn't be completely closed off to it. Uh, Beyond that, I I love that Kevin and Tommy are in the same space. You know, we haven't seen that other than... um, I believe it was the penultimate season one in the in the garvey's at their best which was flashing back to uh yeah you know what where they were pre-departure and you know that was really it other than that tommy and kevin haven't shared the same space so i'm i'm mostly interested in like what does that look like emotionally to have these two together again yeah, throughout season one, Kevin was calling him a lot. And right. Tommy wasn't answering. And we find out that, and we even have it revisited here a little bit in season two, that Kevin adopted Tommy when Tommy was three years old. I mean, they're not, I mean, Justin Thoreau, not, not, a, not a super young guy, but he's not an old old man by any stretch uh and so he probably is maybe only i don't know 20 to 20 maybe 20 years this guy's senior somewhere in you that there about and i'll look it up yeah so that's what i was going i was vamping for you josh i got it uh, but i i think they're not that far apart in age that you can't look at a young kevin garvey making that choice and say that's a magnanimous you know you you have to see it as like that's a really strong choice and he must really care about this kid he's and, 14 years older yeah, so I, in real life. Yeah, he's 44 yeah, so, years old and Chris Zilka is 30. Yeah, so I don't know. Um, well, well, let's just ex- – let's say that Chris Zilka is playing 25. Sure, let's – let's. <laughs> yeah, I, th- I feel comfortable doing that. Yeah, and maybe Kevin Garvey is playing 45, if you will. <laughs> yeah, at the age um, of 14, Kevin Garvey adopted Tommy. Yeah, that that uh, that Lori Garvey. Uh, <laughs> Let's not uh, go there. Let's not yeah, go there. I think uh, Billy Idol wrote a song about that. I don't know. It's called like a uh, Cradle of Love. Maybe I don't know. Stop. But uh, but anyway, that wasn't on the wheel, so we shouldn't discuss it. The frozen donkey wheel. Yeah, no, not the frozen donkey wheel. The the pick six bingo wheel, oh, right. uh, or whatever that the hotel lobby karaoke wheel. Sure. Um, yeah. No. I, so I don't know. Um, I don't know. The, what I'm basically saying is that. That is a choice. No matter how old you read Kevin or how young you read Tommy, it, it has to be that Kevin was relatively young when he made that call. He's probably only 22, 23, in his early 20s, uh, and making a decision to adopt someone else's child. That's a strong call. Kevin has always felt an emotional bond to Tommy. Um, and that adoption 
option, we see kind of two separate versions of that because we did hear Meg's story, right, about her stepdad that showed up uh, and then was gone within a year after he made the magnanimous choice of adopting her and the judge gave her a lollipop and all of that wonderful stuff. Uh, But then we also see Nora uh, and the Garvey family adopting the baby uh, that Laura is talking about here. Uh, And I think that that's interesting because – that baby, Josh, I don't know exactly what's going on with that baby, but we did have a, a good comment from Geek Furious, uh, and Geek Furious, who I know is an active user on the Leftovers Reddit as well, and I've seen some theories about this baby on Reddit as well. Geek Furious said, if there was one scene that felt poorly realized, it was the whole bit with the baby, unless that has a greater meaning than just driving two characters together. Otherwise, it was just super convenient that someone steals a baby and then just drops it and leaves it behind. Not convenient, not just convenient, but pointless. There were any number of less convoluted ways of putting Tommy and Nora together. They set that up early in the episode, executed the payoff to it later in the episode, and that's it? Um, that's weird. First of all, there's some really good responses to this comment at our page for this pod, this previous podcast at Post Show Recaps. I encourage you to check out. But Josh, you know, do you think there's anything more to Lily Wayne um, or Nora with the baby? Is it is it just that Nora gets her baby? Um, we heard the radio bit in this episode when before Nora says, fix that, Jesus, uh, when somebody's talking about a couple with a departure and a young girl that departs and whether they should have another baby or not. And Nora's listening to that, very actively listening, uh, not just passively. And so the baby is clearly something that means something to Nora. If you'll recall at the end of season one, she's ready to write Kevin the Dear Kevin letter and take a hike. Oh, she wrote it. And she wrote it. And then when she finds the baby, that changes her mind. So clearly this baby means a lot to Nora. Uh, Do you think the baby means anything more and therefore this scene on the bridge that Geek Theory is is talking about reads differently. I suspect the scene might have read a little differently to you in light of what you said earlier about the, the, the girls driving and the timelines and all of it. But, but what's your stance on all this Lily Wayne stuff? And is there something more to it uh, thematically or otherwise? Well, I don't know about thematically or otherwise in terms of um, like the connection to Holy Wayne and is she going to be some sort of mystical figure here on this show? I think that she is pivotal to Nora Durst. Um, and also I'm just thinking right now because the, the fix that Jesus was so good that that in contrast with like Channing Tatum's FU science from 21 Jump Street is just like the two opposite <laughs> armies of leftovers think and lost think that you could just like mash those two together. I think that's really funny. That's great. Someone make that video. Uh, yeah, please. please. Shut up, Tim. If you listen to this show, I don't know if you do. <laughs> uh, someone get on it. Um, but yeah, I, I think that for, for Nora, I think that Lily means everything. And I think for Nora, who lost so much in the departure and it took so so long for her to rebuild herself and to find meaning, to find purpose again, and found it in this kid. And I think that probably the the question, or not even the question, the accusation, the the harsh assessment from a total stranger who's saying, you know, a total McPoyle, as you would call it, yes. uh, would be, you know, from this person who says she's not yours, she doesn't belong to you, all of that stuff. It's probably a reflection of a lot of what she's been thinking about herself. Um, you know, think about Nora during Lens and how she was, you know, saying all of these things about how, like, the one thing we get to do is we don't have to, like, we, it's not our fault. We get that, at least. Like, we don't blame ourselves. Um, and then, you know, Erica Murphy just, like, cuts her down in, you know, in response to that with basically, like, basically, you know, without saying it, but what you just said to me was BS. Right. Um, and so I think that there's a lot of, you know, Nora puts out a front 
and puts out ideas into the universe that maybe she doesn't fully, fully believe herself. Um, and the Lily thing could be part of that of like, yeah, I love this baby. This baby is mine, but this, you know, this McPoyle in the, in the park saying she's not yours. She doesn't belong to you is probably an echo of the doubts that she's already feeling within herself. So when the baby is baby napped, uh, when, when Lily is kidnapped and abandoned on the bridge, um, you know, it's a moment of redemption in a lot of ways. It's like, you know, it's, it's a replication of, of the departure um, in that suddenly this person who's carrying this baby is just gone. What happened to that person? And I think it's a, it's a moment of redemption for someone who was so deeply affected by the departure to have an act of heroism. And on top of that, um, a, a true sign of, yes, I do love this child. Yes, I do need this baby in that she is, you know, becoming a human shield for Lily in the middle of the bridge. Yeah. I mean, you could argue with the logistics of like, hey, just pick up the baby and go. Don't like lie down with the baby and cover the baby with your body. Get it up. Go, 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 go. You should get on, get moving. Get moving, Nora. Uh, but beyond that, she's, you know, forming a shield and is being stepped on by people. That's like, that was the worst. It's like, she's getting, like, I thought that Nora Durst was going to get crushed and killed in that moment. This whole scene was harrowing for me. I thought it was really excellently realized. Um, and I think that for Nora, what it accomplishes is confirmation for Nora that no, this baby does belong to me this is my child she's mine now uh you know i live here now uh i live here now with yeah. with, with, with with lily and i think that um you could you could say that the, the the greater meaning was that it was just driving two characters together that it was supposed to get nora and tommy together i think that that to me is the least important part of the scene um i think it's you know the most important part of the scene for me is Nora and and Lily coming together in that moment. I think that it you know an opportunity of of great stakes and and kind of high action and suspense is uh, a really cool cinematic way of testing that relationship. And I think that they did a really good job with that. And then from Tommy's point of view, I think for Tommy it was you know uh, you know it was it was great to have him kind of stick his neck out for the family after kind of being a recluse and being sort of in the shadows for so long. So there's good stuff with Tommy's re- reaction to it as well. But really the uh, the Nora and Lily connection is is really where it's at for me and then just really quickly i just wanted to give like five thousand thumbs up to nora durst's reaction when she sees that it's the girls on the bridge and that they didn't depart i was like all right another secondary departure busted yeah yeah she's like yeah this is <laughs> girls oh who supposedly departed yeah, who departed. yeah, yeah that I was that, great that's that really good yeah um we had a, i mean one of the great responses to that comment was from tar sentinel and tar sentinel basically said from my second watch i remembered that tommy promised holy wayne that he will take good care of that baby and there's a scene when tommy noticed nora but now i'm pretty sure that he's looking at lily and so there's that aspect of it as well with tommy he's the one who left the baby on the nor- on the doorstep the nor step the nor step he's the one who left the baby on the nora step uh not for nora to find but is nora is nora step like dubstep or dog step Dog step? No, that's a different thing. Um, it's not. There's no base breaks and no. You know, there's no. Anyway, yeah, it's not the same thing. Um, but yeah, that that is. Uh, he left it for Kevin because he thought, you know, Kevin took care of me. He's a good guy. He's going to take care of this kid, and I think this will work out if I leave the baby with him. Uh, but that doesn't mean that Tommy has no attachment to that baby anymore, or that he doesn't feel something. And so, yeah, he does see Nora and the baby. He recognizes the baby instantly. Obviously, he understands he's putting two and two together. What? 
what happened. And he is probably watching out for that baby as just as much as Nora is. And so I think that's good for Tommy as well. Um, and so it isn't just about bringing the two of them together. Honestly, the fact that Tommy ends up at the house, there is some fruit to that. But he could have been brought together with any of the people and ended up at that house. I mean, there are other ways that that could have happened, as Geek Furious observes. I think the incident with the baby, um, that McPoyle, did she really want the baby? Did she want to hurt Nora? Did she lose her interest once the bridge stampede kind of started and she was running into Jarden? What if she uh, departed? What if, it, what if, you know, in the moment that Nora needed it to happen the most, somebody did? secondarily depart that would be great because that woman i think she had like a wallet chain from her nose to her ear um she had her shaved head i mean probably some local talent they picked up in austin there so i understand uh that that's not you know they wanted her to look mcpoyle-esque but she from the minute she pops up on screen saying that's not your baby and nora gives her the great like f off like that lady did not look like somebody that you really wanted in your sphere at all so who knows why she wanted the baby? Who knows why she took it? And maybe she dropped it in an accident and just kept running. There's a million possibilities there. But I really did like the way that that scene showed Nora's self-sacrifice, like you're saying. The, the fact that she's willing to kind of lay on the baby and cover it up, um, that was great. I didn't think that was a problem. Did you have any complaints about this episode or – uh, the season in general, Josh, and this is kind of a, by means of wrapping this podcast up. A lot of people are saying perfect season of television. Some people saying best season of television. Um, do you have any kind of issues that are lingering that you want to maybe see season three address or that you didn't feel so good about at the end of this episode? Um, huh. Tough question. Uh, you know, off the top of my head, not a ton. You know, we didn't really talk about Mary and Matt. Yeah, you know, I didn't, I didn't love that. Uh, I, I'll admit that I didn't love it. I thought that, that that Mary waking up was a little jarring. I think that the way that it was presented, a little jardening. I thought that it, it was really, it was really sudden. You know, just like the whole like, "Hi, Nora, where's Matt?" Like I thought, like it was just like, "Oh, wow!" And she just like has this. I don't know. It, it wasn't my favorite thing. Uh, I, I think that I didn't love like the big holy music in the background with it too, just because I think that the music choices this season have been so uh, unbelievably spectacular, and the score to the show as it stands is already just like so magical that I, I it, it felt like the whole thing just had this really strangely surreal quality that you know is you know a way that you would compliment the show most of the time but for me wasn't sold well and i think it was probably because i was so invested in everything else that was happening and with all the characters who've been actively awake and participating throughout the series um that just like the mary thing i don't know i i wasn't i wasn't fully ready for it and i just wasn't fully on board with it so i i think that if i had to level any complaint um, that would be that would be the one. Did you like it more than I liked it? No, I mean I didn't. I didn't. I didn't like. I didn't dislike it to that level. But I will say I do think the writing there is a little bit trite in that um, there's a lot to really unpack with Mary. Um, what did she know? What didn't she know? Uh, saying, "Hey, Nora, where's Matt?" Not like. How did you get here? Or where am I? Or, you know, what day is it? Or what year is it? Or anything like that. Um, you know, when she woke up the first time, we know from now, as confirmed, thankfully, she did wake up the first time. We know that um, she and Matt had a long talk. We talked about everything. And this is a Mary Keep in Mind who didn't know about the departure. Uh, when she wakes up, she might find out a little bit about it from Matt, but how much can you really go into in one day, and how much do you go into in that period of hours about how much society has changed and all of that? 
And you're right. When she wakes up, what the lines she's given are, hey, you know, hey, Nora, where's Matt? And she's just totally happy about it. And that's the kind of choice that Janelle Maloney has made. And those are the words that have been written for her to kind of say there's so much more to do with Mary and unpack. And I think that Damon Lindelof had said he felt like the imperfections of the season were giving short shrift to characters like Nora and characters like Lori, um, characters who, if you know, they had 13 episodes, they obviously would have done a lot more with. Yeah, I think uh, that he said he wishes that he could have done like a Jill perspective episode. A Jill perspective episode I get episode that because well. she was underutilized this season. When she was there, she was great. I mean, everyone had a moment in this episode, though, is the thing. Like even people who were underserved, like, um, you know, Jill crying on the stairs when talking yeah, with to, Lori. Yeah, that was beautiful. That was just yeah unbelievable yeah and that was great when she threw it right back in her face right and she said you know like uh oh like i'm gonna have to talk to you at some point really yeah and that was great really like, yeah really yeah this has been really with antonio and josh <laughs> yeah no i um i, I thought that was great yeah. so it's a moment but you know if we talk about imperfections i think they're mostly related to the fact that they made some clear choices to do these point of view episodes and i think that that's clearly to the benefit of the show 100%. i don't think anyone would disagree with that uh, but by doing that you sort of limit your ability to tell every single story as, as much and as deeply as you would like and i think that when it comes to imperfections i think they're mostly related to the fact that we didn't get more of the leftovers if this had been a 13 episode season i'm confident it would have been just as good because they were really jamming on all cylinders here uh and we, they would have found ways i think to fill those three episodes with really fascinating and emotionally jarring stuff and i say that because i did not expect when we when we had the first two episodes we podcasted here and we said episode one episode two they're great we're, we're like really excited about what's going on here but like you know this is like not what well, then like i don't know like my phone is so excited right now nah. like this is what's going to, you know, this is not you know, what's going to happen for the show. And then episode three is like, oh boy, we're going to get back to the guilty remnant. We're going to get back to Tommy and Lori. Like we're going to take ourselves away from this great world that we've created. And then that episode was great. Yeah. Like it was so good. So I'm confident that if they had done a Jill point of view episode, if we'd gotten more Lori and Tommy, if we'd gotten more Meg, it still would have been good. Well, they would have been planning for it. You know, yes. like they would have been writing for that. They would have known that they had had 13 episodes. That they would right. They would have figured that out. Yeah, and I don't think that I don't think like you know when you watch a network show and it's twenty three episodes or whatever, you can see you can feel the weight of those seasons and you can see that they're stretching things out. Um, but I think that they could have gotten to thirteen without any incident or issue whatsoever. But I'm happy with the that, ten. Like the ten, I'm, it was really tight. You know, yes, it was a tight ten for for sure. And you can tell when Damon Lindelof's talking about his regrets, they're regrets of if we'd only had more episodes. Like we could have done more with Jill. We could have done more with some of these other characters. So I'm not saying that the season suffered as a result of not doing that. But I think that, you know, if you want to talk about perfect seasons, I think if, if we had a 13 episode season, I think we would have had even more goodness. And I think that could have been even better. And I think it's hard to say that in light of how great it was. But I think 13 would have served it a little better than 10. Well, I, I, I'm really happy with the 10 that we got. And I, I, so, can, I can see that argument for sure. Uh, and certainly I would have loved to have, you know, kept having active episodes of the show to continue talking about for another three weeks. Uh, but I'm, I'm re I am really happy with what we got. And I think that those characters, too, maybe were, if you want to argue that they were underserved this season, I think that everybody got moments this season at least. Yes. Um, you know, where every, every character was really valued. Every, like, main important character was valued. Maybe some more than others, heavier than others. But I think 
still just, um, you know, at, at least everybody had like some moment of beauty, you know, some moment of, um, you know, some, some chance to step up and ascend and, and be in the spotlight. So, well, and let's, let's do this. Let's, let's close with one final thing because I think it was a great tidbit and it's a great tease. Uh, you mentioned to me about, uh, relief pitchers and starting pitchers. Do you remember that? Yeah, I do. Uh, believe it or not, sportsing. Um, but yeah, this is from, from a TV line interview. I don't have the TV line interview right in front of me right now. Um, but it was a TV line interview with Michael Osiello talking to Damon Lindelof and asked like, come on, give me some sort of tease for what season three might look like. Uh, and Damon Lindelof said like, well, we've got Scott Glenn, the actor, Scott Glenn, who plays Kevin, Kevin senior. Uh, we have him on our show and we've been using him as a relief pitcher. Uh, when Scott Glenn is a starting pitcher. And if we were to do a season three, I'd be really interested in what that looked like. And again, I don't have the quote in front of me. And maybe That's I'm pretty close to it. I yeah, think. yeah. Maybe I'm fabricating it, but I think that he also said like, and maybe not just like current Kevin senior, but like other versions of Kevin senior, like younger versions of Kevin senior, maybe. Um, so that's on the table. That's cool. That would be great. I'd love to see that. Yeah, they want I think they there's another interview with Lindelof where he talks about the only real regrets he had in, in terms of coming from season 1 to season 2 that they had to say goodbye to some of the great characters uh like Michael Gesto, Dean the BBA, like the the woman who played the mayor whose name escapes me, like the Frost twins, uh those actors, the teenagers that were kind of parts of the cast and like uh, Jill's friend Amy uh who were kind of the main characters from season 1 who weren't in season 2. Um and you know, if you want to flash back with Kevin Senior, there's the opportunity to include some of those people especially the mayor not all of them uh but some of them and i think that if you had you know a season two with more episodes there's a possibility we could have had a scott foley episode but i really like that that is on the table for season three now and that he's actively teasing it because i think that anything that we left out of season two that we feel like oh that would have been whatever i think it's on the table for season three did you and say I think scott that foley or did i just imagine i said it? scott foley i met scott glenn we I are thought. the b613 and we are not spared yeah. <laughs> we're going to we're going to wonderland josh it's gonna happen oh that's good i was um, thinking about shows that are uh, weighed down by having longer seasons oh no, that that would be one that would be one yeah. um all right i mean we, we could honestly probably be here for another two hours if i didn't have to you know go to sleep and interview somebody in the morning uh, so I think I'm gonna I'm gonna opt to do that. Right. Um, but do you have any, any any other final kind of parting thoughts as we're just you know sort of closing the book on the leftovers season two and potentially the leftovers at, you know in general? No, I mean I I I've loved doing this podcast. I think this is a show that resonates with everyone uh, that watches it in different ways. Um, it speaks to so much about why, why we view the world the way we do, um, the decisions that we make, the, the choices that we make, the way we respond to things that don't make sense, the way we lens things. And I love that. I love that there's a show on television that is dealing with these heady issues in the way that this show does. Um, and it's fascinating. I love the, 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 the journey that we took here to Jarden, Texas, and the origins of belief and spirituality and mystery and all of those things that we tackled in this season. I think that it makes for great podcasting. It's an easy show to talk about, uh, even though it's not an easy show to understand. And so if this is our last Leftovers podcast, which I hope it isn't, I've had a great time doing it, Josh. And um, maybe we'll maybe we can sneak one more in before this. Yeah, is all we'll, said. we'll we'll try we'll try. Uh, you know, if we can get some more conversation going, uh, I think I think we'll aim to do that. But yeah, I, different I, voices maybe. Yeah, 
people in the mix. Yeah, totally, totally. I, I echo everything that you just said, though. I think that all of that is exactly how I feel about the show. And one of the things that you said in, um, in a recent podcast when we were recording our leftovers introduction for people who have never seen the show but have been flirting with the idea of taking the plunge or like at least want to hear what the fuss is all about is you know borrowing the language from the show itself is this is a show that sticks on you. Uh, and it really, it really does. Um, Alex Kuntz, who's a, a regular listener of the show and you know interacts with us a lot on Twitter. Big Lost fan. Big Lost fan. Uh, I, I'm paraphrasing, but I th- and I think that it was Alex. Alex, correct me if I'm wrong, but said something to the effect of like I haven't been like I haven't like fallen this hard for a show since Lost. Um, and at the time, like I I wasn't there, um, you know, and, and I think that you know people who've heard me podcast before know that Lost has you know an enormous chunk of my heart, um, and I was heavily invested in that show in a real guttural way. I was really connected with that thing, and still feel that way. Um, and I, I don't think that I could ever love again that way, you know, like, you know, <laughs> you, can't, you can't ever love like you did with <laughs> yeah. your first. Well, I feel like it's, it's always going to be a real special kind of love that I feel like I don't think that I'll ever be able to repeat that with anything, but I will say that the leftovers, uh, clung to me. It stuck on me in a way this year that I really didn't anticipate it would, you know, I remembered coming into season two and getting ready to start podcasting about it with you. I remembered, uh, you know, really loving that final run of episodes, but I also remembered not loving the first run of episodes. And I remembered, you know, it, it became a very easy decision for you and I, like we were going to kill either the strain podcasts or we were going to kill the leftovers podcast. And we Don't said, remind Laura Maria Olson, Josh. Sorry, Laura. And it was very easy to say, Stragoy! and, you know, <laughs> just like wipe that off the face of the earth. And I've, you know, got no regrets about that. But I do think about like the alternate universe where we had, uh, if, if not had gone the other way, but had shuttered them both or something. Because we were never going back to the strain. Uh, but, like, if we had closed the door on the leftovers and just chose, like, we would, you know, focus on other projects this year, uh, I'm really glad we didn't. I'm really, I'm really glad we, we got into season two the way that we did. I feel like we would have missed out on something magical. I think a lot of people have missed out on something really magical. Talk about best season of television ever. Talk about best show ever. All that hyperbolic things that, you, you know, all that hyperbolic stuff that you want to say about the show. Uh, go ahead and do that. It makes you happy. I mean, I'm guilty of it i'm talking about international assassin as a top 10 episode of all time for me uh i will i will hold to that at least for the next few weeks talk to me again in a month um but this will be a very special season of television for me uh forever um i i I love what they did with this show i'm i said this uh, on another podcast that was it's a weird thing to say but i feel really proud of damon lindelof for really you know, sticking the landing and and telling a story that is so completely his vision and so so artfully done and masterfully told. And you know, it's really the story that um, you know the type of storytelling that I always knew that this guy had in him because I feel like he had demonstrated it. You know, really incredibly in other other works of his before. Um, and not enough credit that you or I, but especially I'll speak for myself, have, have given to you know other creative forces on the show like Tom Parada, Mimi Leader, uh, and other people in the writers' room who really. Came Came together and sort of Voltroned the shit out of this show into just like this incredible, incredible force of nature that you know not a ton of people were putting their eyeballs on, but if only they had, because I think that what they would have found, uh, you know, the people who thumb their noses that I don't trust Damon Lindelof, so I'm not going to watch the show. I think you guys missed out big time. Um, I think that you missed out on something that really makes you feel feelings that you didn't think a show could make you feel. Um, so uh, to to bring it back to what Alex had said, is this you know is this a show? 
that has sucked me in in a way that no other show since Lost has. I don't know about that, but it really sucked me in deep. And season two of The Leftovers and probably The Leftovers as a whole is going to mean a lot more to me than I expected when we had closed the book on season one. Um, having closed the door now on season two, or at least, you know, closed it for now, let's see if we can reopen it again. Um, it really it, it has meant a lot more to me than than I anticipated for sure. And it's been really great to have you along for the ride, Antonio. It's been, you know, this was the, the genesis of our friendship and our podcasting history together. So it was cool to, to get back into this again with you this year. And I think even, you know, put to, put to shame some of the early podcasting that you and I had done. I think that you and I were really great this season. It was really fun to talk about it with you and to get all these people who've been interacting with us, the listeners, you're all awesome. You're all incredible. And it's been yes. just a very insightful community. And it's been really cool to do whatever little part that we could do to grow the thing you know, even minorly uh, to bring in some new people. But Antonio and I absolutely noticed it. You know, people who binging billied their way through the leftovers that, you know, after our podcast dropped. So that was really, really cool. So this whole thing has been very, very fulfilling. Sad to see it go. We'll have plenty of awesome stuff to be podcasting about in the upcoming weeks and months. I mean, most shows recapped, still going on, still thriving. Antonio and I with Rob there every every Friday. Um, and definitely some new shows in the new year that you and I are going to are gonna hack into. Yeah, I'm, I'm excited to get into it. You see that. what I did there? I did. I heard the word hack into. Yes. I heard you say that. Yeah, where's my mind with that pun? So I don't know. <laughs> I feel like uh, maybe, maybe like uh, Spencer Bledsoe, like a little Mr. Robotic here. Oh, so, you know, whenever that show comes back, obviously we're going we're gonna to do some Mr. Robot stuff here on Push Up. Yeah. So uh, look forward to that in, you know, like probably like June or some some such like that. So there's great there's great shows on the horizon. Walking Dead coming back. I mean, I can't believe I just said that. I, the Leftovers really soured me on Walking Dead this season. I think Good. you could tell... With my Walking Dead podcasting, that I was very frustrated with that show this season. But to have that, you know, and AJ articulated this really well, but to have that show, to have uh, uh, The Leftovers on Sunday nights going up against Walking Dead, like, really just crystallized for me, like, the, the leap in quality between the two. The, you know, the way that Walking Dead played with my head this season really pissed me off. Uh, but, you know, there's still things I love about that show. But Game of Thrones coming back, I cannot wait for that. Better Call Saul, I can't wait to listen to what you and Rob have to say. So lots of great stuff coming up in the post show recaps future uh lots of great things going on to mike bloom and kurt clark doing once upon a time so lots of great things how many more times can i say great stuff and great things i don't know but every one of them's accurate yeah every one of them's true and so i'm looking forward to it if you're not subscribed subscribe to our main feed of post show recaps what's that feed josh how can you that's, there. Yeah, it's postshowrecaps.com slash iTunes. If you want to get back into the Leftovers groove, if you haven't done it already, postshowrecaps.com slash Leftovers iTunes. Those are the two feeds to subscribe to, and you can subscribe to some Twitter feeds here. Antonio's at AC Mazzaro. Two Z's, Two Z's, one R. I'm at Round Howard. Uh, got a good hashtag if you got this far, if you got to the end of, you know. like. Uh, the, do you have one? I don't know. I don't know. We said, like, uh, was it Santa Damon at the beginning of this thing? <laughs> yeah, Santa Damon. That's good. All right, so I have a hashtag Santa Santa Damon, if you got here with that, and that's great. Damon Lindelof, bring us a bring us a holiday present, please. Get us a you know get get it from HBO. Give us some more leftovers. I'd love to see it. If yes. you, if you don't, then I love where you left it. So I I'm agree. I'm a happy customer either way. I'm just happy for the experience if we got the show that we got, and if we get more, I'm really excited about where the show could go. Either way, I'm good. Yep. Um, all right, Antonio, all right. you good? I'm great. Thank you. All right. Thanks. Bye. Thanks, everyone. <laughs> Take care, everybody. Talk to you soon. Bye. Bye. Bye.